The general. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Who became a slave. You should not have defied the emperor. The slave. Win the crowd. You'll win your freedom. Who became a gladiator. They said you were a giant. I shall cheer for you. The gladiator. At my signal, unleash hell. Who defied an empire. Today I saw a slave become more powerful than the emperor of Rome. From director Ridley Scott, Russell Crowe, Gladiator Rated R. Ridley Scott's Gladiator was released in 2000 and became an instant classic. Set at the height of the Roman Empire and telling the tale of Maximus, a general turned slave seeking vengeance for his murdered family, it was a box office and awards hit and made a superstar of its lead, Russell Crowe. My name's John and with me today are Westy. I did not say I knew him, I said he touched me on the shoulder once. And Matt. You sold me queer giraffes. All the right movies are in 180 AD to talk the glory of Rome, Ridley and Russell. We're not the best because we kill quickly, we're the best because the crowd love us. Hello and welcome to All the Right Movies, Fathers to Murdered Sons, Husbands to Murdered Wives, and the podcast <laughs> on classic and hit films. Yep, that's everything. <laughs> Today we're going back <laughs> further than we ever have before, 2,000 years, give or take a decade, to talk yep. ancient Rome, the Colosseum, and Russell Crowe as we bring you the story behind Ridley Scott's Swords and Sandals epic, Gladiator. Yeah. Yep, yep. Before we go back a couple of millennia, though, we're talking about Patreon again. If you're a fan of what we do on this, our classic podcast, and would like us to keep doing it, please help support us do that by becoming an All the Right Movies patron. Patrons also gain access to bonus podcast episodes and full access to our archive of classic episodes like this one. The archive's growing all the time, and right now there are over 37 further classic episodes in there. So we've got Jaws, we've got Ghostbusters, we've got Raiders, The Terminator, Back to the Future, The Godfather, Aliens, Die Hard, Star Wars, loads of others. An archive bigger than the Coliseum, right? Obviously. Yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. Full of treasure. <laughs> so to find out more and sign up, please visit patreon.com forward slash all the right movies. Also, we have a little favor to ask. So we have a Facebook group that has almost 1,000 members and is full of lots of fun movie chat. We do. We'd like to grow that group. So if you're not a member and would like to join, search for All the Right Movies on Facebook to find us. And if you're already a member, would really appreciate it if you could invite your Facebook friends to join in too. There's some good chat in there, isn't there? Yes, that would be lovely. There's some really good discussions. Oh. Always very vibrant. Always, always yeah. lots of fun. Loads. For now, though, it's back to the three R's. Ridley, Russell, and Rome. I wonder what the third one was. <laughs> I thought you were going to say read. <laughs> we could only be talking about Gladiator there. So why are we talking about it, Matt? Well, I mean, it was just like such a staple part of Saturday Night TV, wasn't it? Because you had Jed, you had Wolf. Oh, fucking hell. <laughs> oh, Someone had to make that joke, wanted to get out of the way. No, no, the film, right? I think in recent years, right, this film, people have got quite sniffy about it, and I, I don't quite know why. And I don't think it gets enough credit. 
in a lot of ways because this whole sword and sandwood genre was absolutely mm. dead before this came mm-hmm. along. And obviously you've got Braveheart a few years before, which helped. But then this one comes along, and for me, it's still like the standard bearer of the genre. I mean, Ben-Hur, it's got two or three really famous scenes, but when's the last time anyone actually tried to watch that? It's an absolute snooze fest for the most part. <laughs> but this one, it's anything but. It takes off like a rocket, and it just keeps going. It never stops. It's just an absolute roller coaster ride. It's just sheer entertainment. Yeah. I remember this coming out of the cinema when I was a teenager. It was massive at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, huge. Box office smash, it won awards left and right and made a huge, huge star of Russell Crowe and Ridley Scott again, three times in a couple of months. So lots to talk about there straight away. Yeah. I've got a bit of an interest in ancient Rome as well. I've been to Rome and it's a stunning place. So just seeing it, realizing all of its former glory and gladiator is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Massive production is the film. So loads to get into there mm-hmm. as well. And there's some right characters in there, not just Crow and Scott, but we've got Joaquin Phoenix and a couple of old school Hellraisers in Richard Harris and Oliver yep. Reed. So yep. we might have a few good stories around them as well. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I know that not everyone loves the film, like Matt sort of touched on. So I'm interested to get your fellas' takes on it as well. Mm. And Westy. Yeah. Well, I was working at the cinema at the time when this came out and we saw it in the afternoon viewing and we came out and then we went out and I just thought, I need to see that again. So I went straight back in and watched it again. Classic Westie. Classic Westie. And nobody else came back in. They were like, well, we're, we're going out. I was like, I'm fucking not. <laughs> classic Westie. Yeah, classic Westie. Classic Westie. <laughs> so uh, I went back and watched it again. I was just absolutely blown away by it. I loved like all them sword and sandals epics. I loved Ben-Hur and I loved Spartacus. I loved like even the more camp ones like Clash of the Titans, Jason the Argonauts. I kind of grew up with yeah. all of this. Then all of a sudden, like almost like reality it was like a real life version of it and it was it was up to date and it was mine and i was like this is amazing i absolutely fucking love this it had everything that i wanted it had action it had emotion it had great story had great characters it had some old actors like you say like richard harris and oliver reed who i hadn't seen for years and years and they just popped up and they just Mm. fucking added so much to it and i was so excited to watch it and i still am excited to watch it like when the dreamworks comes up and it's sepia and like that you just hear Mm. the in the background then the gladiator going you haven't said fuck this is so good (laughs) seeing it for the first time on the big screen was just an absolute spectacle and i love the film i always have and i'm still not sick of it watched it about about six or seven times in preparation for this any excuse Mm. so watched it again last (laughs) night and it's just yeah it's fucking brilliant absolutely love it kind of way to talk about it so gladiator was produced and distributed by dreamworks and released on may the first 2000 filmed on location in england morocco malta and italy it was directed by ridley scott written by david franzoni john logan and william nicholson and it stars russell crowe joaquin phoenix connie nielsen oliver reed and richard harris so should we get stuck in then let's get in there yes Okay, cool. Via Germania, Northern Europe, we're heading back to 180 Anno Domini and ancient Rome to bring you the beginning of Gladiator. Let's give them something they've never heard before. Scott doesn't hold back and throws us into the thick of it right away in Gladiator and we've got two massive moments to talk about. 
We're discussing the key plot point where Commodus murders his father and Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius, but we're starting before that with the big action set-piece opening in Germania. Yeah. So after some title cards telling us that the Roman Empire stretched from the deserts of Africa to the borders of northern England, we're right into it. We meet our protagonist, that's Maximus, played by Russell Crowe. He's a Roman general and leading his men into battle against a tribe of barbarians in northern Europe. Oh, yeah. Huge opening spectacle, this, right? No, oh, it's too, it's almost too big. Westy, on my signal, unleash hell. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'll, I'll, I'll wait for it. I'll wait for that flame and arrow to fly over my window. <laughs> oh, there it is. Right, here we go. But uh, it's just, yeah, you're just straight in. You just get that close-up of Crow. He's watching that little robin and it flies away. And then you just get to see this grandeur of just the army. It's just one thing after the next. You just get, when he's walking through, you can just tell the character, you you want to fight for him automatically after about 30 yeah. seconds. Yeah. And the great thing about this film is that Ridley Scott just is so interested in how artistic it is and how visual it is. And he gives you the backstory on the screen for 25 seconds, telling you what's yeah. going on. And then gives you a hand going through wheat for 28 seconds. So it's more <laughs> <laughs> he's more bothered about that hand going through the week than he is about the whole backstory of the film classic scott yeah yeah it really is when the the germanian barbarians come through if you notice the chant from zulu that's yeah. there oh right yeah that's great yeah, that it's, bit. it's taken straight from zulu it's like when they're kind of intimidating yeah. them so they use that over the top mm-hmm. and they've added more base to it and i love that the the leader of the germanian army's got that staff and he's got that mask on it which is a mask from zardoz did you know that you know the short is it really no, <laughs> the, yeah, it's a mask from zardoz painted gray the mankini one <laughs> yeah <laughs> i was like this just gets better it hasn't even started yet well, my favourite bit of this whole sequence is when everyone's kind of lining up and you, you, he's given the orders, it's like the, the range is good, everything's fine, everyone calm down. And then that horse comes through with the guy's heads off and you mm. just think, oh, fucking hell, and you hear the screams and everything starts building up and that horse knows where it's going. It's obviously shit scared. It's running back home and it's like, they say no. And it's just yeah. so good. It's just so powerful. Now, mm. without this opening sequence, you wouldn't have, half as interesting battle sequences since in every single film that's come since. And you certainly wouldn't have as engaging series as Game of Thrones, for example, which owes a lot to the even just this opening sequence. It's that good. The film could end at the end of this sequence and I would be perfectly happy to spend a tenner on it. No problem. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there was only one way this film was ever going to start and that's the Roman army going into and winning an epic battle. It does everything Scott needed to. It's thrilling, so it pulls us the audience in immediately. It introduces us to our hero and effectively sets him up. We see he's a great fighter. He's taking on about 10 barbarians at once. While they're on fire. Yeah, and he's on the floor. We see he's a great leader as he masterminds the victory and we see he's an honourable man. I like that line where Quintus says, people should know when they're conquered. And Maximus says, would you, Quintus? Would I? It's great. Yeah. And what this opening also does is it sets the template for what's coming. This film's going to be absolutely massive in scale. And that's set up here. Really seen a battle sequence as big as this. I know it took 20 days to film it in England. Thousands of extras, enormous sweeping crane charts, loads of forestry on fire. It's all there for what's to come. It's just huge. It's not perfect, I don't think, and I find some of the close-up action beats quite hard to follow sometimes and don't understand what's Mm. going on. gets a little bit muddled for me in the middle a bit, but on the whole, I think it's an excellent opener for all those reasons I mentioned above. Really, really impressive from Ridley Scott. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's like Ridley Scott watched Brave Heart and thought, you know what, those battle sequences were pretty impressive. I'm just going to throw mine away in the first 10 minutes. You know, yes. that's how confident <laughs> he is with yeah. what he's got with this film. And he, he just does, he just throws it away almost. But what I love about it is, is you see the use of tactics. So you can see the Romans aren't just going to go running straight into this German tribe. They've got a plan and you can see that the cavalry are advancing, but then you've got the archers behind them firing the flaming arrows into the woods and then Maximus and his soldiers are on the other side so they can come in behind them. So there's real clarity to their plan there, which you don't get in a lot of films like this. It, it's usually just quite chaotic, but not in. I really like that. But once it kicks off, it's just carnage and you're just picking out all these details like Maximus chopping off a guy's head with such force as his sword ends up gets stuck in the tree. Yeah, yeah. It's insane. When you consider, like, before this Ridley Scott's last three films were 1492, White Squall, and G.I. Jane, you just say, right, okay, <laughs> he's back. You know, yeah, like, yeah, Okay, yeah. this is Ridley at his best. He's back. The only thing that annoys me slightly, I wish that better extras, because you can see some of the extras in this aren't great, and they're, they're literally just standing around and laughing, because they don't realise the camera's on them. Really? Right, I've not noticed that. Yeah, I won't point out exactly when, because it does spoil it, but yeah, that annoys me. In this sequence as well, you know, Mac- Maximus's pet dog, which was meant to be a wolf, but they couldn't get a wolf in the country because of the rabies law, so they couldn't import any wolves into the UK. So they had to get a dog that looked like a wolf. And I think the dog's absolutely fantastic, called Kite. Does everything he needs to do. And you're just worried. You're like, how's he going to keep up with them horses? But he manages, obviously. Absolute legend. <laughs> but, he was, <laughs> but he was also another famous screen dog. He wasn't the littlest hobo. He was, in fact, oh, Robbie hmm. Jackson's dog, Wellard, in EastEnders for a few years. If you can imagine. <laughs> oh, wow. From Russell Crowe to Dean Gaffney. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what a kick in the teeth that is. <laughs> Disgusting. <laughs> Speaking of Maximus Pets, actually, you know on his breastplate on his armour? He has two yeah. horses engraved. Yeah. He tells us later that they're called Argento and Scarto. Yeah. But mm-hmm. do you know why they're called that? I don't. I do know this. Oh, is it because they're translated to Silver and Trigger? And Silver was the Lone Ranger's horse and Trigger was Roy Rogers' horse? Very good, yeah. Wow. Is that right? In Latin, Silver. That's correct. In Silver, Latin, Latin yeah. is Argento <laughs> and Trigger is Scarto. And there's another little bit of like here, which is one of the really like, iconic lines of the film where Maximus says to his troops, strength and honour, as he's briefing them. And that actually, that wasn't in the script. That was uh, something improvised by Crow on the day. Yeah, that's great. That it was a, He originally wanted to say it in Latin as well, but Ridley Scott said it sounded much better in English, so he said it in English. All right, cool. All right. We're talking about there about the forest fires, about everything going absolutely apeshit and just everything burning down. And you just think, well, how are they going to get away with that? Just turn it to a forest, just burn it down. But really, Scott got quite lucky. And it was filmed in Bourne Woods in Surrey. And I could have sworn this was like the Lake District or Yorkshire Dales or somewhere because it looks really familiar. <laughs> it just like looks like yeah, I've seen that yeah, place yeah. before. But it's that kind of massive land. And the Royal Forestry Commission, it's later the area for deforestation. So Ridley Scott just rang them up and said, I can get rid of that for you. I can burn it to the fucking ground. And they were like, yeah, go for it. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, perfect. Here we go. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense because the scale of destruction we see is just ridiculous. Seems like half the wood's yeah. on fire. So yeah. good that Noah Scott wasn't just burning down random forests without any permission. <laughs> no. It's so good. Imagine having that responsibility, though. It's like, we've got this massive amount of forest. What do you want to do with it? You're standing there as a director with all these extras, and you're kind of going, uh, I don't really know. But Scott goes in, tear that down, set that on fire, yeah. set him on fire. That's amazing. <laughs> he just knows exactly what he wants. So as action openers go, this is up there as one of the most spectacular. It's up there. Absolutely. Yeah, easy. 
at my signal. Unleash hell. After the huge spectacle of that opening, we're into the other side of Gladiator, the family drama. Yep. So after meeting Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius, played by Richard Harris, and his scheming children, Commodus and Lucilla, played by Joaquin Phoenix and Connie Nielsen, we find out Marcus Aurelius wants Maximus to become emperor. Mm -hmm. Commodus doesn't take the news particularly well. He murders his father and orders Maximus, his wife and son, to be executed. Yep. Mm. What a bastard, eh? Oh, piece <laughs> of shit. Bastard. Did I miss the battle? <laughs> He's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> and as it builds and you, you, you see the the job that Joaquin Phoenix has to do, you can see why he was so nervous to do it because he has to play a complete arsehole. And if you don't hate him in this film, then you're probably dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But this does set up the pace of the film, which I do have some issues with as it goes on later because you have these big, big, big mm. set pieces mm. and then it's candlelit in a tent for like 20 minutes and just slow dialogue. And just what about this? And well, what about that? And, oh, yeah, and then strangles his dad. It's just a, but, but, but so where is this going? And then it builds the story again, and then you get a set piece, and then it goes down and it goes up. And that's the genius of it. And if you can tap into that rhythm, then it really works. But I think mm. Scott is really he's he's really confident putting this sequence in because it is drawn out and it could be quite boring for people. But I think mm. you know you put Richard Harris in there, you put Whiting Phoenix in there, you put Russell Crowe in there. And that absolutely nailed that pace yeah. because of the level and the weight of the performances. I think the performances in this sequence, especially, are really overlooked. I think it's fucking brilliant. It is powerful, isn't it? Yeah. Richard Harris mm. is always great. And in just a few scenes, he leaves a big impression here. Really yeah. memorable is Marcus Aurelius. It's awful when he goes. We hate Commodus immediately, like you said, Westy. That's obviously the intention. And I yeah. think it's probably the key plot point of the entire film. The writing's good, the performances are all excellent. So. It is really good, but do you think they've missed a trick by not making Maximus and Commodus brothers? I know they call each other brothers, and Maximus calls Marcus Aurelius' father, but I mean, yeah. like, actual brothers. Commodus is the older one who should get power, but he gets overlooked in favour of Maximus. It could have been. They wouldn't have to change anything at all in the film, but I think it would have a lot more power than what it does. I know the purists would say, well, Marcus Aurelius only had two children, Commodus and Lucilla, but they changed so much else that's in there that it's not winning any awards for historical accuracy anyway it feels to me like they did miss out a little bit there maybe i i don't think so because then because then maximus wouldn't have that amazing backstory of home he wouldn't he wouldn't live in spain True. with his wife and his farm mm, yeah. you know he's got his own life and he's he's sacrificed enough for rome and for the empire and for marcus aurelius and he just wants to go home he would you wouldn't have that angle if he was connected by blood i guess what marcus really is trying to do is make him his son so I think that's even more powerful because they're trying to pull him in and he wants to go. I love that shot you get of Richard Harris on the hill, like watching this battle unfold and he's really... That slow limited. push. And he, that slow push in. Yeah. But you notice he only relaxes when he hears Maximus like cheering victory and he's like, thank fuck, Maximus is alive. Because <laughs> yeah. if yeah. he gets killed in that battle, you know, Aurelius is screwed because it's going to be Commodus who comes yeah. after. So yeah. I, I love that little that little character moment and, and like you were saying... The introduction of Commodus is great. So in terms of how dramatic it is when he kills him, I think it's absolutely fantastic. I yeah. just wish Phoenix would turn that intensity down a little bit just because I struggle to make out what he's saying in that scene where he's like really choked up and he's just like yeah. snot everywhere. Yeah. Like, what is he saying? I can't quite make it out. Be like the sun down my heart for a thousand years. <laughs> So, what, what? <laughs> See, I understand you. I don't understand Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> I should have got the part. <laughs> um, and then in regards to Maximus fleeing, for me, that's one of the clunky bits of the film because 
it, it does make sense plot-wise, but that's a lot of riding Maximus has got to do to get to his family. I mean, he's basically got to ride through the entirety of France, which I think I think it's supposed to take him about a month, but that's done in literally like a minute or two of screen <laughs> time. And I just think that doesn't quite fit together quite well. That's the thing there because, yeah, I don't know how they get there so far ahead of him. Yeah, because he knows what's at stake, so he wouldn't stop. No. But overall, the, the drama of it's really good. Yeah, that when he's when he gets away, though, that fight sequence... Mm. When he's like, you know, the it. frost, sometimes yeah. it makes the blade yeah. stick. I love the way they wait till dawn as well. It's so dramatic. Ride till mm. dawn, then kill him. Don't just, just take him yeah. outside the tent, kill him now. That's yeah. miles easier. Actually, yeah. just kill him in the, in the tent. It's warmer. <laughs> just kill him now. Um, he, he wants him dead. Ride till dawn because it's really dramatic. And then, you know, stab him in the, in the spine, in the back of the head. And there's that fantastic bit where Harris kind of breaks character a little bit and becomes a lot more reserved and just wants to know more about Maximus and more about his home and why he wants to go back there. And it mm. just seems so heartfelt. And I've just read up on this, obviously doing research for this, and found out that it was all ad-libbed by Crow, and he's describing his actual home in Australia when he's like, you know, yeah. olives on the left, and it smells like jasmine in the morning. It's just, oh, it's just, you can just tell. Love like he's scene. missing it. And it's just like, it's, it's like, you know, Goosebumpy. You can just tell yeah. he's just got a real affection for it. And that's him actually describing his own home in Australia, which, to be honest, sounds fucking perfect. <laughs> it really does. He's like wild <laughs> ponies galloping about. Waiting. Yeah, <laughs> sounds class. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. so Some of it might have been a little bit, you know, you know, on top of yeah. what actually happened. And and I know what I said there about Phoenix being a bit too intense in that scene for me, but you know, he was he was genuinely a bit intense in that sequence space, squeezing Richard House to death because he got so into it when the set cut, Phoenix just passed out. Really? Completely sparked out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just got too far, got far too into it. You can tell the one he's squeezing his head and he's just like, he's going to pop, he's going to pop, he's going to pop. Intense man, Phoenix, isn't he? He was yeah. really going to it, to be fair. Oh, yeah. 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 So a couple of big, big and very different moments to start off, Gladiator. The opening of battle shows us the might of the Roman Empire, and then we're brought right into the family issues at the heart of the story. I think it's all pretty effective. Oh, massively. Oh, really effective. You know exactly where you are with this straight away. The director. We've mentioned him already, and the director of Gladiator was Ridley Scott. No stranger to epic classics. We've talked about him twice previously on our Alien and Blade Runner episodes, so check those out if you've not already. Mm-hmm. Very different beast here, though, in Gladiator. So how do we think Ridley does as the director of the film? I think he does really well because I think right in his wheelhouse with this film, he's always had that aura, hasn't he, of a director you could like pick up and take back in time to the 50s and 60s, and he would have been right at home making the likes of Ben-Hur, the Ten Commandments, all those biblical epics. Yeah, That's absolutely mm-hmm. the kind of thing you could imagine him doing. And it, on, on this film, I think it goes back to a little bit what we said on Alien and, and touched on in Blade Runner, is that he's not someone who's necessarily comfortable with complex storytelling or moral and character ambiguity or anything like that. He's, he's much more comfortable with big, broad storytelling strokes. And that is absolutely what Gladiator is. You know, there's no shades of grey in this film at all. It's one really heroic guy, one really villainous guy, a grudge between them that's really simple to understand, but it's emotionally relevant at the same time getting revenge for murdered family and i think that's something that scott can just connect with and he knows how to deal with those big issues and he's absolutely fine with that because he's not getting sidetracked in little fiddly bits of plot or murky characterization 
So all the pivotal plot points, all the big emotional beats in this story, he lands them really, really well. Um, and obviously we'll, we'll talk about what he does visually in a minute. But yeah, in terms of storytelling, in terms of plot, I think this is possibly the best he's ever done at just telling a story very simply, but very effectively. Yeah, I mean, this is right up Scott Street, isn't it? Epic blockbuster set in an ancient period of history. That's him through and through. And I think he does mm-hmm. a really good job as well. I sort of mentioned it earlier, but I think Gladiator has two sides to it. There's the enormous big-scale spectacle on one side and then the close personal drama on the other. Two very different types of storytelling, and I think Scott does them both really, really well in the film. Mm -hmm. We said that the spectacle comes in the very first sequence and doesn't really let up with numerous Gladiator battles that just get bigger and bigger when we reach the Colosseum. Then there's the dysfunctional family stuff that powers the narrative, the relationships between Commodus, Lysilla, Maximus. Scott handles that well too. I've said on other podcasts about Ridley Scott films that I don't think he's a great storyteller sometimes. Great visuals, and mm. we see that in Gladiator, obviously. But sometimes I yeah. feel like he makes poor choices that don't make sense in the narrative sometimes. I don't think that's the case here, though. I think the narrative's strong, and Scott tells yeah. it well. And coupled with his talent for the visual, it produces this, this film. I think every time Scott tells a story well, it results in a classic, and Gladiator's no different. Yeah, so I saw this when I was 19 and he overtook everybody as like my favourite director for about three weeks once I'd seen this. <laughs> and I thought it was just, for that, that was that was like, that's it. I can't wait to see what he does now. Everything kind of come together. I loved Alien. I loved Blade Runner. Mm. I'd, you know, I'd, and it just, it started to sit with me of like, this is a director's film. It is a director's film. It's got mm-hmm. actors in it. It's got set pieces in it. But this is just his, his brush constantly just over this canvas and you can see it in every shot i mean look at everything john matheson has shot before or since nothing looks as good as this mm-hmm. and as every dp that he works with nothing looks as good as this look at everything russell crowe's been in after he hasn't been this good mm-hmm. you know and richard mm-hmm. harris and oliver reed had to die because they couldn't do any better than this <laughs> had to die <laughs> sentenced to death <laughs> because they just thought you know what? That's good enough for my last film. And I think if Ridley Scott had made nothing after this, which he shouldn't have done, let's be honest, <laughs> yeah. it would have been like, yeah, he's one of the greatest directors of all time. But he mm. kept pushing it and kept going for it. But this is where everything, you know, when everything just seems to kind of like click together and it just it it all just forms perfectly. And it's two and a half hours. It doesn't feel like two and a half hours. No. It kind of flies over. Yeah, it does. You are completely yeah. you are engaged all the way through it. It is start to finish an epic film on a really realistic scale. He was at a point of his career with Gladiator that I think is the zenith of his career. Everything else, he was kind of hiding behind the visuals, like you guys have said. This is the one where everything comes together. This is like Ridley Scott's Rubik's Cube, where everything is in the right place. Mm. Well, DreamWorks always wanted Ridley Scott to be the man to helm Gladiator. Understandably, it is right up his boulevard, like we said. But he wasn't certain at first. Have you heard about this? Yeah, he did. He had to be uh, persuaded by Walter F. Parks, who was head of DreamWorks and Douglas Wick, who you'll probably notice his name on the credits because he's a producer. And they went to see him because they wanted him. And to persuade him, they showed him a French painting from 1872. Um, It's called Polizia Verso. It's by a guy called Jean-Leon Jerome. And the title means thumbs down, and it depicts a gladiator standing over a beaten opponent. Apparently, that's all Ridley Scott needed. He was straight in there. Yeah, you can see that painting online if you're interested. And not that I claim to know anything about 19th century French art, but it wasn't quite what I was expecting, but I looked at it. It is a great painting, though. No, it's fantastic. I've got it over my fireplace. 
<laughs> like, I seriously have. I believe you. Don't worry. <laughs> he, walked, he walked into Ridley Scott's office and put it on his desk in front of him. He said, have you got 10 minutes? He's like, yeah, I've got 10 minutes. And put it on his desk in front of him. Then Ridley Scott looked at the paint and looked at him and went, oh, I'm fucked. I've got to do this now. <laughs> <laughs> Can't say no to that. Nah. Well, one of the major challenges Scott faced with the film was tackling the task of creating a believable and credible ancient Rome. Gladiator was far from the first time Hollywood had tackled it. Classics like Spartacus, Ben-Hur, Cleopatra, countless others had done, done so decades earlier. But this was the first time anybody had recreated the empire with modern sensibilities and digital technology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Scott was already a proven master of world building by this point. But this was a big undertaking for anybody. So how well do you think he did and his crew to realise the ancient Rome on the big screen? It's 97% perfect. <laughs> You've worked it out. <laughs> I've worked it out. That's my answer. <laughs> Matt, how much percent was yours? 99. I've obviously missed a couple of things I Westy found. Yeah, I think the scale of it, I think what he brings to it, and the fact that they the, the built the Colosseum and he said it was too small, so they had to extend it <laughs> because he just said, this, this just doesn't have the scale, it doesn't have the scope. They built the streets, the everything. Everything in this film was made for it, even the armory, even the, the, the costumes, mm. everything was made. Nothing was found or nothing was reused from a different production. That's why I think this feels so genuinely itself. It just feels like a contained film. And yeah. when it comes to like them sets, I mean, even Richard Harris said he walks on the on many different cinema film sets. He walked on this one. And he just thought, geez, this just takes some mm-hmm. getting used to, to absorb it. You know, it, just the Zanzibar set that just built an on top of an existing town. And just to make that even bigger, when you just walk through the streets of Rome, you know, this big feet from statues, the, the, the Colossus of Nero statue that was outside of the Colosseum, just the, yeah. that foot is there, which is perfect. And it's just it's just there because he wants to be able to put that camera wherever he wants to put it and have that freedom and tell that story. And he knows exactly what he needs to do. And I think he learned a lot of this from Blade Runner. He learned a lot of this from Alien in building them worlds. And he just took what he learned from those and made it bigger. There is some questionable CGI, which I will get to, but it's very questionable. And it's about two to 3% of the film where I'm like, oh, that's not necessary. But most of it is just flawless. I mean, you kind of tell even now, 21 years later, when they walk into that Coliseum for the first time on the big screen, you can't tell. It's so good. Yeah, I know that Scott was very keen on avoiding what he thought as the swords and sandals cliches. So things like people lounging about, eating grapes, drinking wine from goblets. He wanted the film to have a realism, and they went all mm. out to achieve that. The costume designer was called Janty Yates, and she and her team created over 10,000 costumes for the cast and extras, and almost 30,000 pieces of armour were created just for the movie. Yeah, Most of the Rome set scenes were filmed in Malta, and that included building a replica of the Colosseum, like you mentioned, Westy. It was 52 feet tall, it took seven months to build, and it cost $1 million. I think some of the digital effects haven't aged that well. Establishing shots of the Colosseum and the Circus Maximus don't look great by today's standards, but it was state-of-the-art at the time, so that's easy to forgive. All in all, I think it's an incredible depiction of the ancient Rome, and that's one of the main reasons I keep going back to the film, to be honest, just to see that on the big screen. Yeah, we, we you you said it there, John. It, it's world building, and that's the other thing mm-hmm. that's completely in, in Scott's wheelhouse. You know, it's something he's always been masterful at. And I think what's really impressive is 
he goes from building the worlds you see in Alien and Blade Runner, which is a lot of set design, a lot of map paintings, a lot of kind of old school trickery. And now he is a big, vast CGI epic, which, you know, combined with some sets as well. But he handles that pretty seamlessly. I do agree with you guys. There's some shots that haven't aged well. They're not great. There's... There's one where the first arrive in Rome and Maximus and the slaves are looking up at the Colosseum. The green mm. screen isn't really good there. That looks really dodgy, that one. Yeah. But for the most part, it's still really detailed and it's really convincing and you do feel like you've been transported back in time, which is what the film needs to do. So you, you feel like you can almost like smell those streets. You know, mm-hmm. you can kind of feel the dust blown onto your face. So... You know, and then you throw in those action sequences, which are absolutely massive. And he's like a little kid who's got a Lego set, and he's just building this world and, and like having little fights with the figures. So, f- like for the vast majority of it, it's so well done. Well, Gladiator won Best Picture at the Oscars, and Scott was also nominated for Best Director. Do you know who won that year? It was uh, Soderbergh, wasn't it? Stephen Soderbergh. Yeah, for Traffic. Yeah, it also worked out pretty well for Ridley Scott in another way as well. So Giannina Fasio, who plays Maximus' wife in the film, Scott married her in 2015. Yeah. Yep. So Oscar is a classic movie and bagging a beautiful wife. <laughs> Not bad for a lad from South Shields. <laughs> Not bad. He's done all right for himself, hasn't he? The a big-name director on Gladiator, a big-scale production, and the stars we see on the screen were all pretty big too. We're going to mention Oliver Reed in a little more detail later on, but for now, we're going all in on the actors with the two biggest roles in the film. Joaquin Phoenix as amoral Emperor Commodus is coming, but obviously, we're starting with the gladiator himself. Mm-hmm. Russell Crowe as our main character, Maximus. Sounds great. Yep. So, Russell Crowe is Maximus Decimus Meridius, a Roman general at the start of the film. We follow his journey from husband to a murdered wife, father to a murdered son, through the gladiatorial arenas, through to having his vengeance and killing Commodus at the end of the film. Mm-hmm. His name is Gladiator. And Maximus. And Spaniard. And Decimus. <laughs> and Meridius. <laughs> Whatever you call him, what do we think of him? And Russell Crowe in the role. I think Russell Crowe, at this point in 2000, couldn't have been more perfect for mm. this role. I think you need someone who's got the the build, but also has got the emotion, who's also got the acting ability, and someone who you can believe to be a general, and then at the same time you could believe to be a gladiator, who at the same time you believe could boost the morale of thousands and thousousands of men. You're just mm. like, yeah, you, mm, yeah, you're totally, but I don't know anyone else at that time, and this was at that cusp where it was just fading, and then you had the new generation come in just after 2000 and I can't I can't see someone like Chris Hemsworth doing this or anyone like of, of, no of way. the new the, no, the new kind of vibe no, no. it's just it's just it's or like the rock do you know what I mean it would be the rock now wouldn't it it'd just be like fucking hell man it'd be shit be set in the jungle if it was the rock well it would be obviously but the, on, on some kind of boat <laughs> <laughs> but yeah like i cannot imagine anyone at that time in 2000 who had this kind of charisma who had this who was relatively unknown at that point i mm. mean you had la confidential mm. you had the insider he'd just done the insider and then lost all of the way to do this yeah, yeah. 
but he lost the weight. He didn't go to a personal trainer. He didn't lift everything. It's not like the guys out of 300 where they look chiseled as fuck. He's just, it looks attainable. Yeah. So that makes you kind of go, yeah, mm-hmm. this looks natural. Like he's naturally part of this role and everything works just the way he delivers the dialogue, just his accent, just everything about him, the way he fits the costumes, just everything about this performance for me totally, totally works. I think it is Russell Crowe's best performance, I think. Just from everything, just the physicality, just the the way he delivers the lines of dialogue. Let's let's be honest, could really be really hammy and crap, yeah. and just a bit yeah. over the top if it's overplayed. And there's that amazing bit when he's with Connie Nielsen towards the end of the film, and he's just kind of like he meets her again, and he's like, "As you wept for your father," and I just think he was the perfect actor at that time to pull this off. I cannot think of anyone else who could have done it. He's, he's absolutely perfect in this film. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. As a character, I think he's well-written, Maximus. He has a defined yeah. personality, stoic, brave, honourable, and he has a backstory and strong motivations throughout the story, vengeance for his murdered family. I mean, it's hardly massively original or inspired stuff, but it's there. It's enough for it to work in the film. Yeah. What makes the character sing for me, though, is like Westies is wax lyrical about the casting of Russell Crowe. He brings Maximus to life and makes him feel unique and iconic. Firstly, he does look great in the part. He looks perfect as Maximus. And I like Russell Crowe as an actor. I think he's excellent generally. And somewhere I think he usually excels is in his line delivery. I think he's great at delivering important, powerful lines and making them land. And there's loads of them in Gladiator. Yeah. Strength and honor, we mentioned. Husband to a murdered wife, we mentioned. Are you not entertained? I will have my vengeance. All iconic, all delivered by Russell Crowe in the same film. Yeah, And then when the action sequence has come, he's not found wanting at all. Doesn't look out of his depth for a second on the no. battlefield or no. fighting to the death in the Colosseum. So, yeah, iconic character. And Russell Crowe, I think, is perfectly cast as Maximus. Yeah, absolute agreement with you two because the main thing I'd seen him in before this was LA Confidential. I think if you go back and watch that film, I think it's really obvious why Ridley Scott wanted him because... It's all about the attitude that he brings, just that like complete self-belief he's got in himself that he won't back down to anyone and he won't accept defeat. And it's exactly what Westy's saying. He's not like built like a big man mountain. He's obviously in shape, but that's like all he needs to be because he's just got so much confidence in himself on the yeah. battlefield. He doesn't need to be like, you know, six foot eight or whatever. And one thing that's always stuck in my mind when this film came out was when Empire Magazine... Uh, reviewed it and they described him as Russell Crowe was clearly born in a hard month in a hard year due in a freak outbreak of total hardness <laughs> and I think you know what that's just the best description of Maximus I've, I've mm. still ever yeah. heard because it's he is he's just hard and he just brings yeah. that on screen but I like how he just brings in other bits as well he's he's not just like a meathead you can see mm. he's intelligent how he rallies his troops you can see he's a sensitive guy you've mentioned there about the journey that he's on which is to get vengeance and you see it in the quieter moments in the film where he's just in the cell by himself and he's, he's just he's just hiding in the corner he's not strolling around the men like he used when he was um, a general he's in the corner and he's grieving because he's taken that moment moment for himself i think russell core is really good at bringing those moments out as well so yeah he clearly brings the physicality that the film needs but he also brings a lot more he brings a lot of emotional depth to maximus and that has a lot to do with why this film works as well as it does yeah there's that fantastic moment isn't there when just they're coming out of the coliseum and they're coming down on the they've just he's just sport of comedies and he's surrounded mm. by like six foot two six foot four yeah. huge wrestling mm. guys and he just walks <laughs> off the lift and he's got his helmet with him and he, he just commands that yeah. that whole yeah. frame 
and he's tiny in it, but you can just see that's yeah, the guy yeah, right yeah, there. He's totally yeah. got it. It's brilliant. Well, Ridley Scott cast Russell Crowe after seeing him in Romba Stomba, actually, in 1992 Australian drama, mm-hmm. and said he was someone worth yeah. watching. Yeah. But as ever, there were other names up for the part before Crowe was cast. Have you heard any of those names? Mel Gibson, I've heard. Yeah, Gibson was in there yeah, at one point. Mel Gibson yeah. was offered the role and turned it down. Gibson says he was too old to play back Maximus, and Ridley Scott actually denies he was ever even offered the part. Could you see it, though, Gibson yeah, Maximus? Yeah, that makes sense. I think it would just be a rehash of Braveheart, wouldn't mm. it? I mean, he was yeah, 43 yeah. at the time, and I don't think you're too old, you're too old at 43, maybe because we're 40 and I just, I'm defiant. <laughs> also considered Hugh Jackman and Antonio Banderas. Banderas would have been disgusting. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stick to Zorro. M- made more sense as a Spaniard, but that's about it. Imagine Banderas is Maximus and then Russell Crowe is Zorro. It would be amazing. Russell, Russell Zorro. <laughs> well, thankfully, after seeing Romba Stomba, Scott did offer the part to Russell Crowe. There was a bit of a carry on in getting Crowe to sign on, though. Have you heard much about that? Yep, yeah, Crow said that when he was first approached, the script was so bad that the producers wouldn't send it to him just in case he didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so imagine how bad that must be. It's had like three rewrites at that point. And like Ridley Scott, he said, oh, I just have to meet with Ridley Scott instead. And he was worked with Michael Mann on The Insider. And Michael Mann said, right. you should really take this Ridley Scott project a little bit more seriously. Go mm. meet with him and see what he's got to say. So he met with Scott and... Crow said Ridley's pitch was basically we've got a hundred million dollars it's in ancient Rome you're a general and you're being directed by me <laughs> so then Crow's <laughs> like well yeah okay that's absolutely fine directed yeah. by Ridley Scott hundred million I'm a Roman general yeah I've turned into a gladiator fucking brilliant what a great pitch that's you, all you need you're being directed by me no low self-esteem problems for Ridley Scott is it bloody hell yeah none at all imagine if you no. weren't though and he sat there yeah you're being directed by somebody oh, what are you doing here <laughs> <laughs> well after all that Russell Crowe was in and playing Maximus so what's your favourite moment of his in the film my favourite moment is when he, he kind of goes back to his his original state of mind after he's been a slave and he's seen his family die, which it, it, it's incredibly powerful that moment, by the way, it could have just been a little bit of a sob fest, but yeah. it just, it's just so mm. powerful. You can, I still see them on the cross, even though you see oh, the feet. It's awful, yeah. I think it's just mm. so yeah, yeah. powerful the way that's delivered and it, they don't hold back and it's just, you know, this complete emotion. And I think that's unreal. So you see him strip bare, you see him become a slave, you see him not care, you see him just, he just wants to get beat down, he wants to die. And then all of a sudden he gets this chance from Proximo to win the crowd. He's in the Coliseum and he's surrounded by people and he's surrounded by, you know, these fellow slaves, these fellow gladiators. And he asks if anyone's been in the army, people have actually served with him, you can help me. And he rallies the troops together and the way that he puts everything together in that first fight in the Coliseum totally makes it for mm. me it's just so yeah. fucking entertaining and the guys who would just go off by themselves are instantly just rinsed out <laughs> just <laughs> yeah. just an arrow bang you're <laughs> fucked bang you're fucked and then you know he, he goes and saves his mate like get back in here form a column diamond yeah. and everything starts fucking up and then he gets on the horse and he starts ah oh, come on <laughs> it's like yeah, he's back. He's a general, but a gladiator at the same time. It's like all of his ability and all of his emotion mesh at that one time, and that's exactly what you want to see from the character, and it's perfectly realised. It's brilliant. 
Well, mine follows on from that, really. and it, it is probably the most famous moment in the film. I think even if you haven't seen Gladiator, you know what this moment is. And it's when he finally reveals himself to Commodus. Oh, Obviously, come on. He's just been in the, in the Gladiator uniform so far. But, oh, this moment, I mean, the music's amazing. The tension is ramped up because you know he can't get out of this. He is going to have to take his mask off. So what's he going to do? And just the way he turns around and he just moves slowly forward. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. Commander of the armies of the North, General of the Felix Legions. Loyal servant to the true Emperor, Marcus Aurelius. Father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife. And I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. The speech itself on paper could be just absolute drivel yeah. if it's not delivered Shite. right. But <laughs> Crow knocks it out of the park. I mean, it's just goosebumps watching him deliver that dialogue and the look of fury on his face like like you should be seeing like little wisps of steam coming out of his ear just because he's like keeping that anger within him because he he knows he can't kill comedies right now and also you you gotta say Joaquin Phoenix here I've never seen anyone so convincingly portray a man who's shitting himself (laughs) because he clearly is then um yeah, the moment is absolutely massive and it's iconic and it's all down to how Crow delivers that dialogue yeah, I think some people have a problem with that moment, but it's real movie magic for me. Oh, come on. One of those moments that never happens in real life. Nobody yeah. talks like that, but no. doing films all the time, and when it's done well like here, it's just yeah. fantastic. Yeah, I mean, we're going to talk about the script later on, and we can say you know, whatever we want about this, but I mean, Crow actually said to William Nicholson, who wrote the script, like, your lines are garbage, but I'm the greatest actor in the world, and I can make even garbage sound good, and that's exactly what he does here. <laughs> it's absolutely fucking brilliant. And then Nicholson later on actually said, yeah, maybe my lines were garbage, but fucking hell, he's absolutely nailed it, to be fair. I know that Russell Crowe really threw himself into the role as well. Over the course of his action scenes, he lost all feeling in his right forefinger for two years. He aggravated his Achilles tendon, broke a foot bone, cracked a hip bone, and popped a few bicep tendons out of their sockets. So he was in the wars a bit. Yeah, and in the opening <laughs> sequence as well, all of their wounds on his face are absolutely real, like stitches in his mm. face. So he, as he was riding the horse, he went through a thicket yeah. and just completely just tore him to bits. <laughs> so like all the stitches wow. in his face are real. Like that's all in there for real. He loved it. <laughs> <laughs> well, finally on Russell Crowe, we have a question from Patreon. So a benefit of being an ATRM patron is that we answer your questions on the show. And David McEwen, strength's not that, Dave. Hello, David. <laughs> Dave is taking it down to street level by asking, okay, Crow's Spaniard versus Gibson's William Wallace. Who wins? Now, don't come to me first on this. Don't put me in, <laughs> don't put me in this situation of two of my favourite characters of all time. Is this a is this a face off? Is this is this in the Colosseum? I need I need more details. In the Colosseum, I think um, Maximus would win because he's used to being in the Colosseum, and William Wallace's sword is far too big to swing around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think just because you know. Wallace, he's going to come charging at him because that's kind of his main thing. But Maximus, he's got the military training. He, he would have some move in his locker. He, he would just have the coolness that I don't think William Wallace would have in this situation. So, yeah, another vote for Maximus. Do you not think that William Wallace would just be at the other end of the Coliseum with just a massive stick <laughs> just waiting for him to run under? <laughs> Hold. Yeah. Hold. Yeah. Now. <laughs> Dead. <laughs> Bearing his ass at him first. <laughs> yeah, obviously. <laughs> Just throwing rocks at him for ages. <laughs> <laughs>
for his role as Maximus, <laughs> Russell Crowe was nominated for and won Best Actor at the Oscars. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it kind of pulled him to be one of the biggest movie stars of his generation with other big movies following like A Beautiful Mind, Master and Commander, Cinderella Man, American Gangster, Les Miserables and lots of other films. Never quite hit the heights of Gladiator again though, I don't think. I don't think so. No. Came close to Master and Commander, I really like that. But Yeah, that's a yeah. great film. Well, the bad guy to Maximus Good Guy is, of course, Commodus, played by Joaquin Phoenix, the son of Marcus Aurelius and rightful imperial heir of Rome. He's looked over in favour of Maximus, resulting in him murdering his own father and becoming emperor before dying fittingly in the Colosseum, fittingly at the hands of Maximus. Commodus is not a moral man. (laughs) And one of our patrons, Robert Potwin, thinks he's one of the best villains ever seen on screen and wants to know what we think. So what are our thoughts on Commodus and Joaquin Phoenix playing him? I think he's very much like Russell Crowe in that to fit into this film, you can't overthink these roles. You can't be subtle. Mm. You can't look for shades of grey in these characters because they're not there. You've just got to look at what's on the page and fully commit to it. And I think that's what Phoenix does. And that's why Commodus is such a memorable villain because he's just, you know, he's slimy, he's conniving, he's just a horrible little bastard. And it's exactly what this film needs. I mean, he's a panto villain, basically. He's someone who every time he's on screen, you should boo and you should hiss. <laughs> yeah. but, but that's what the film needs. You, you can't have subtlety here. And I think it's interesting that physically he's no match for Maximus, obviously. So he's got to be intimidating in a different way. And he's got to be a threat in a different way. So he's actually quite clever. He's really sly. He's more clever than the senators certainly give him credit for, mm. which, you know, and you see that when he has no problem, like dispatching all his enemies, when he sets up the games to get the public on his side. And... You know, you just know if he's capable of killing his own father, he's capable of absolutely anything. And I think Phoenix just kind of dives headfirst into all that. And then when you add into that the massive, like, incestuous vibes he has for his sister, Ugh. like, you just think this is one of the vilest <laughs> characters I've ever seen. But, like, say, the film is all about broad storytelling and not being ashamed of broad storytelling. I think that goes the same for the performances. And I think Phoenix is absolutely key to that. He's brilliant. Well, in doing research for this episode, it didn't surprise me to learn that Jack Leeson, who played Joffrey in Game of Thrones, said that he largely based Joffrey on Commodus in Gladiator. Yeah, oh, that makes yeah. sense. I say I wasn't surprised because Joffrey is the best love to hate character I've seen on TV, and Commodus yes. is one of the best I've seen in films. Mm-hmm. What a bastard. <laughs> yeah. Murders Richard Harris, has Rome's favourite son's entire family killed, threatens to murder his own nephew, wants to have sex with his own sister, has Ollie Reed bummed off. It's just not on. It's not. No, it's it? endless. <laughs> I can barely stand to look at him as a character, but that's yeah. obviously the point. He's a fantastic bad guy. All too often when I watch films, and this might say more about me, I want the bad guy to win. Here, no death is horrible enough for Commodus. Mm. And it's there in the script mostly, but a lot of it comes from Phoenix as well. He's fantastic. I mean, he pretty much always is. Grand yeah. Underbeer Clean is one of the best actors of his generation, and he started back in 1985. But Commodus was his big breakthrough role, I think. This was his chance, and he really took it. It could have been really cartoonish in somebody else's hands because Commodus is so over the top, but Phoenix sells it, shouting, am I not merciful at Lucilla, which Phoenix improvised. That's brilliant. The busy little bees monologue, really creepy. Like Crow, he's delivering iconic lines all the way through the film. So one of the best bad guy performances this century. For me, I think he's outstanding. Yeah, 
he has to have that scale, doesn't he? Because you can't be returning to Rome and just be quite quiet with it and be a little mm. bit weaselly or whatever. You've got to have this yeah. bombast, which I know the real yeah. Commodus did have. He believed he was Hercules, didn't he? Yeah, he yeah. actually fought in the <laughs> arena. That Hercules thing is referenced in the film, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, because he says yes, to Lucius, he said, are you Hector Reborn or is it Hercules? Yeah. And he, he actually, yeah, he actually thought that he was Hercules. Another thing that's really cool that's referenced is that Marcus Aurelius died from the plague. And then mm. when he comes back to Rome, he says, have you ever embraced, embraced anyone with the plague? Mm. Yeah. Um, and he embraces his dad and kills him. So he's got, that's a, a nice little hark back to, you know, historical accuracy in a film that's not really priding, priding itself on historical accuracy. <laughs> but there's all these little bits. But yeah, getting back to Phoenix, he is, he's, you love to hate him. And I can see that from a lot of interviews that I've seen, a lot of things that I've read about the film, he was very, very uncomfortable taking the role. He didn't feel like he was good enough. He felt like he didn't quite know how to play it. He felt totally out of, out of his depth. And used to say to Russell Crowe, he wanted to be roughed up before each scene. He wanted <laughs> to be like, just, you know, spare us on, get us up. And, and Russell Crowe went to Richard Harris and said, what we're going to do with this kid? He just wants to get roughed up before every shot. Like, what we're going to do with him? And Richard Harris went, let's get him pissed. So the two guys. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> yeah, just give him loads of pints of Guinness, kind of loosened him up a bit and gave him this, uh, this air of confidence, which is when he started improvising lines. So you can see from the start of it, when he's walking into to the whole frame saying, did I, did I miss the battle? To the hmm. "Am I Not Merciful?" That yeah. whole arc, yeah. even from a, for yeah. an actor in real life, is absolutely massive, brilliant. Nobody else could do it better than Joaquin Phoenix at this mm. point. I don't think. Yeah, when Richard Harris and Russell Crowe took Phoenix out for a few Guinnesses, I'm going to stick my neck out and say that Harris drank them both under the table. Hundred percent, hundred percent. There wasn't a table left. <laughs> <laughs> Drank the table. <laughs> <laughs> Joaquin Phoenix was Ridley Scott's first choice to play Commodus, but he did have one other name in consideration, just in case. I'm guessing you don't know who that was. I don't know. It was Jude Law. But Jude Law? Britain's most ridiculous law. <laughs> <laughs> and we've got a lot. <laughs> Could have been him. <laughs> There's another story where midway through production, Ridley Scott was looking at the dailies and noticed that Phoenix was not was noticeably chunkier than he had been at the start of filming. <laughs> and in Phoenix' defence, he's like, "Well, you're saying I look like a fat little hamster," which is what Scott had said, <laughs> <laughs> which is amazing. But he's like, "Well, why shouldn't I be? I'm the emperor of Rome. Why wouldn't I just eat and do whatever I want?" So Scott told him to lose weight immediately, and apparently, he didn't eat for weeks. <laughs> Fat little hamster. Was that the first draft of the busy little bee speech? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. The first draft think, of this screenplay, to be honest. <laughs> I think you can tell in the, the scene with Lucilla at the beginning. I think that's when yeah. that must have been what Scott meant because he does look noticeably chunkier then. Well, something that does make the character of Commodus a bit more interesting than Maximus is that, unlike Maximus Decimus Meridius, Commodus is based very much on a real life embryo of Rome. And it seems the real Commodus was a right arsehole as well. Piece of shit. You want to hear a quick rundown of his story? Yes. Go on then. Definitely. So the real Commodus was born to a mother who had slept with a gladiator and then bathed in said gladiator's blood. Bit weird, right? Right. Yep. So because of this, Commodus referred to himself as a gladiator emperor and would fight in the Colosseum. Whenever he fought, his opponent would always get stabbed in the back before the fight, like happens to Maximus at the end right. of the film. <laughs> He would also take people with disabilities into the Colosseum Arena, tie them together, and then club them to death. And he was such a megalomaniac that he renamed Rome to be called Colonia Commodiana 
and he began charging the stage for these lovely little appearances in the Colosseum. He charged them so much that the value of Roman currency fell, and historians say this is what directly led to the fall of the Roman Empire. So, well done, Commodus. <laughs> what a bastard. Top guy. Some of the stuff I've read, he, he made them sit in the midday sun and watch them kill a hundred bears in a row. As the bears were maimed, they were thrown out and he killed a hundred bears. And that story that he said about the disabled people, it was everyone who didn't have any feet. They were lying on the ground, wasn't standing up, yeah, in the shape right. of a human, like a massive yeah, giant, yeah, yeah. like all the people. And he just went along, just hitting them all on the floor. What the fuck? What the uh, hell? Ugh, honest to God. Fucking hell. What a piece of shit. Well, there you go. All the right history lessons. Joaquin <laughs> 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 jo- Phoenix was nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor, but lost out to Benicio Del Toro for Traffic. Traffic, yeah. It was a big step up in the career of Joaquin Phoenix, though, and he went on to become a big, big star in his own right. Buffalo Soldiers, Signs, Walk the Line, The Master, Her, Joker, and loads more followed, and he's now married to Rooney Mara. What a bastard. Yeah. <laughs> Hit him even more. <laughs> <laughs> As I mentioned at the top of this section, we're going to mention Oliver Reed in a bit more detail shortly, and there's some other great cast members we don't have time to go into too much detail on, namely Connie Nielsen as Lucilla, Richard Harris as Marcus Aurelius, and Derek Jacobi as Senator Gracchus. Hmm. But in our two leads, Russell Crowe as Maximus and Joaquin Phoenix as Commodus, we have a very strong protagonist-antagonist partnership, I think. Oh, massive. Yeah, one of the best. Should have made them brothers, though. No, should have, man. <laughs> <laughs> into the middle of the film now and since we last saw maximus he's found the charred remains of his wife and son being taken into slavery by proximo played by oliver reed and being trained as a gladiator we're picking things back up here with two of the most memorable moments in the film maximus appearing in the coliseum is coming up but before that we're talking about him fighting in zuckerbar fantastic sounds great so, having been trained by Proximo, had one fight in the gladiatorial arena at Zuckerbar and made friends with Jubo, played by Jimon Hunso, Maximus enters the arena for the second time. He destroys everybody easily before throwing away his sword and delivering one of the most famous lines in the film. Matt, are you not entertained? I am very entertained. <laughs> um, yeah, it's excellent because I love how the fight before this, he can see he's made that instant friendship with Juba. So he's got his best friend there immediately. Yeah. And he, you can see Startner get the men to follow him, even though he kind of doesn't want to. But here, it's actually quite funny because he's just by himself and he strides out. One man against six, and he just makes mincemeat out of every single one of them. Yeah. Just slices his way through. He, you know, he's like the Terminator in a talk at this point. Um, and it does lead to that really <laughs> iconic moment. Are you not entertained? And again, one of those lines could have been really cheap, could have been really throwaway, but it's how Russell Crowe delivers that. It's excellent the amount of like venom he puts in it and the way he spits on the ground as well. Because at this point, yeah. he, he, he still doesn't know about Commodus. He still doesn't know, you know, the going to the Colosseum. So as far as he's concerned, he doesn't care about anything. So he doesn't care if he gets put to death for showing disrespect. And I love how he just launches that sword into the crowd because, you know, <laughs> yeah. he doesn't give a shit, doesn't give a shit if he kills someone. He's got nothing to live for. So I think this moment is really important because it puts him at absolute rock bottom as a character before he discovers what's happening in Rome, which then gives him something to live for. So, yeah, really bloody, really violent, very, very entertained. Yeah, great. Well, up till now, we, or me at least, have been waiting for two things, the gladiator fights and Ollie Reed. Yeah. 
We get them both in quick succession and neither disappoints. Reed is instantly charismatic, as you'd expect. Yeah. There's a good story that Omid Jalili tells. He plays a slave trader, and in his scene, Proximo grabs him by the crotch. Hmm. That wasn't part of the script. Reed improvised it. <laughs> of course it was. <laughs> <laughs> and Jalili said, the film got an Oscar, Russell Crowe got an Oscar, Ollie got a posthumous Oscar, I got a partial erection. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. There's definite parallels to Spartacus here as well with the training sequences. Yeah. And when the fight comes, it is exciting and brutal. And cross delivery of the line, are you not entertained to the stunned audience? Just part of movie history. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, it's great. You know what you know what Oliver Reed said to him before he, he grabbed him by the crotch, before they did the take, he turned around to him and said, Are you a method actor? And he said no. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when they said actually just grabbed these balls, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> now you are <laughs> which is unreal but I, I love all of these sequences i love the, the the whole training sequence and the fact that mike maximus is so defiant and throws that sword away and just keeps getting hit mm. it's like stop he's gonna get his time which means that he's a yellow and juba's a red where maximus definitely should be a red and they kind of work together but there's that scene just before this one we're talking about when he's just that mace is swinging yeah. and that shadow is just cast over when they're all waiting to go yeah. out and that guy pisses himself Maximus <laughs> yes. just takes a step back he's just like I'm not going to get me, me feet wet and piss I'll just blood's yeah. alright <laughs> but piss that's a step too far best bit about this sequence it's the two swords it has to be yeah. when he picks the second yeah. sword up yeah. swings them round and it's the bang bang and then leaves them oh, in the guy yeah. and he walks <laughs> just walks around right here we go what, what else? then takes them out uses them both to take his fucking head off and it's just yeah. fantastically done it's so good and again I'll repeat it so entertaining <laughs> ah, there's another little touch here though that I love and it's before each fight you see how Maximus is always picking up sand from the arena and he smells it mm. and he does the same oh, in yeah. Germany with the dirt as well yeah. well that's because like uh, kind of the backstory that Ridley Scott gave him Maximus is a farmer so he tries to remember his wife and child every time he picks up a piece of the earth or the dirt and it also signifies mortality in the fact that he could die and therefore he returns to the soil when that happens so that's what that's oh, all nice. about lovely little character detail great. Lovely. bit morbid, but yeah, very nice. <laughs> it's kind of really lightly done as well, though, isn't it? It's not It's mm. not overhand. Yeah. It's yeah. just really lightly done, like blink and you'll miss it. But he does it every every single time he's going to kick some ass. He's like, yeah. I'll check the dirt out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good dirt. So we're not quite at the Coliseum yet, but this is a pretty good warm-up. Yeah? Oh, yeah. The best. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? After successfully winning the Battle of Carthage recreation in his first appearance at the Colosseum and his following confrontation with the Emperor, Commodus brings in Maximus' biggest challenge yet. He must face off against the only undefeated gladiator in Roman history. This sequence brings us Tigris the Gaul, Wild Tigers, and Maximus defying the Emperor again by sparing the Gaul's life. Yeah, Not the first time our two main characters share the screen, but it's still powerful. I mean, it's just another excellent sequence, isn't it? Because it, it's like when you're playing a computer game and each level gets harder the further you get yeah. through it. So now, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. he's got to and find better. the undefeated guy with four tigers <laughs> like trying to get him at the same time. Yeah. It's absolutely <laughs> mental. But that's why the film never gets boring because it's never the same fight again and again, just with someone different. There's always something new. There's always something more challenging for Maximus to overcome here. Um and I love that look on Commodus' face when he does defeat Tigers because this is where Commodus really thinks he, he's got Maximus' number and he hasn't. Um, but every time I watch it, I just think, 
fucking hell, there are actual real tigers in there. And I know they're obviously shot like quite a few feet away from Russell Crowe, but it's done so well. You think they're all right on top of him. And the intensity just keeps ramping up. But I think what's interesting is that in the original script, he was going to fight a rhino at this point. Until they oh, discovered yeah, right. that you can't you can't train rhinos, and then they tried some CG ones, and apparently they were just a disaster. So that'll fall back on using <laughs> the tigers instead. Uh, but yeah, I think it's great. The only thing about the scene is that I think that crowd is very fickle. I'm not quite sure how like quickly they would be on board with the whole Maximus the Merciful thing. You know, they're there to see blood. They're, yeah. they're there to see death. Mm. That that's a little convenient, I think. Yeah, I mean, by this point in the film, I'm so engaged in what's going on. It's ridiculous. Mm. Tiger Sickle's helmet is ridiculous, but great. <laughs> the Tigers are a great touch. And the fight choreography is fantastic. The yeah. best in the film for me. It feels like we're watching two legendary gladiators battling it out. Yeah. A disappointing element for me is that Tiger Sickle was played by Sven Ole Thorsen, but he wasn't originally cast. Initially, the role went to Lou Ferrino, Lou Ferrino famous for yeah. playing the Incredible wow. Hulk in the 70s yeah. TV show. I mean, that would have been great seeing him up there. Yeah. But Sven Ole Thorsen did win Denmark's Strongest Man competition in 1983, so oh, well. P.I. might know. <laughs> well, yeah, he's, <laughs> but, in, he's in Red Heat, he's in Cold and the Barbarian, he's in like everything. But yeah, fantastic action scene and narratively a great way to develop the story and relationship between Maximus and Commodus. Fantastic stuff. This is like, when this when this scene happened... When he said, you know, he's, he's in the tunnel and you get that whole speech from Proxima, we're all shadows and dust mm. and there's just Maximus by himself and he walks out of the Colosseum by himself and you don't know what's going to happen and then the guy's running and then the chains are there and the chains start slipping through the hands and you're thinking, what the fuck's mm. going on here? Mm-hmm. And how on earth have they actually done this? I remember just sitting in the cinema going, how on earth have they actually done this? This is ap- absolutely outrageous. And Ridley Scott did a screening for Spielberg. Spielberg watched the whole film without saying a thing and then turned around to Ridley Scott at the end and went, them Tigers must have been an absolute nightmare with, with Russell and, and the guys. Like, I, I can't believe you got them that close. And he's like, well, they weren't really there <laughs> at all. <laughs> like, Russell Crowe is at always 15 metres away mm. from any Tiger at any point. Yeah, yeah. If you watch that sequence again, and every mm. every time they get close and they're, they're scratting or whatever, that's a blue screen and then it's overlaid. This is where you know, computers and CGI is used to its absolute zenith, in my yeah. opinion. If you can't tell that it's CGI, it's the best way to use yeah. it. Yeah, and Ridley definitely. Scott uses it here perfectly. Like, you would not believe for one moment that them tigers are like 15 metres away from him. The way it's it's shot, the way it's lit, the way the, there's 80 moves in here. Russell Crowe said there's 80 different sword moves, as well as four tigers and all the camera <laughs> positions. Like, to get that nailed down this well, and have the just the this the ferocity of it, just the way it starts with that kick up of dust to yeah. his face. It, it's just such a spectacle. It's just so great. This is one of the best action sequences of the last century, from a CGI point of view, from an actor's point of view, from a choreography point of view, for everything. I think it's just fucking so engaging. It's fantastic. Yeah, those tigers are a great touch, and they were based on reality. The Romans would often throw tigers or lions into the Colosseum unannounced for the gladiators to deal with. And Ridley Scott had five tigers here. And for security, they had an expert on hand with a gun loaded with a tranquilizer with darts should anything go wrong. And the tigers, like you say, Westy, weren't allowed within 15 feet of Russell Crowe for obvious security reasons. Something else I like about this scene, it's something you obviously see a lot, is you get that famous bit where Commodus gives the thumbs down 
because he wants uh, Maximus to, to kill Tigris. And that's mm-hmm. obviously based on what they used to do at the time, deciding whether the gladiators should live or die. But in actual ancient Rome, though, it was the other way around. Thumbs up meant death and thumbs down meant mercy because it was meant to signify sheath and the sword. That's what the, the action was supposed yeah. to be. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, yeah. But the crew thought, you know what? Everybody just assumes it's the other way around. And if we go for actual historical fact, we're just going to look like fools. They're going to think we've done it the, the wrong way around. So this, they stuck the, the thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs down meaning death. It would have been pretty confusing. I think, it would have been confusing. Would have been fine if it wasn't for Fonzie fucking everything up in the 50s. <laughs> 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 Never thought he'd get a mention on this podcast. No. <laughs> <laughs> but he Always has. room for Fonzie. so the middle of the film is where we start getting what we've been promised the gladiator arenas the first fight's in Zuckerberg great but the Colosseum is the money shot and once we move into Rome the movie goes up a notch Mm -hmm. I think oh yes yes definitely the crew Gladiator was a huge production, and naturally, there was a very talented team behind the scenes to help Ridley Scott pull it all off. We're going to be talking about Hans Zimmer Lisa Gerrard, who composed the music for the film, mm-hmm. and also cinematographer John Matheson, but we're starting with the screenplay and writing of the movie. Yeah. Mm. So the writers of Gladiator were David Franzoni, John Logan, and William Nicholson. They shared writing credit, but didn't actually write the screenplay together. We'll get to that story shortly, but for now, what do we think of the writing on Gladiator? I think the writing is like on the page. <laughs> Even now, if you yeah. if you took the finished film and wrote it as it was seen on the screen, it would still be a bit confusing and still seem a bit hammy and not very sellable. Mm. So I, I think this was all sold to Ridley Scott on the visuals and on the idea that, you know, you've got the Colosseum, you've got these big spectacles, you've got this big kind of set piece, and it's built within a real world. And I think Ridley Scott was excited about that because every world that he's created didn't exist. And he all of a sudden he's got a chance to rebuild something that's built based in fact. And I think that's what excited him most, more than the script did. I think the story is very simple. I think it's great, hmm. but it is based roughly on about two or three different historical facts and historical people and different things and all kind of pieced together. So for me, it does feel a bit much like a patchwork. It feels a bit, it doesn't feel very linear. It doesn't feel very solid. It doesn't feel very confident as a piece of writing. Obviously, you've got to take into account the things that happened on set of the death of Oliver Reed. It was supposed to end completely mm, differently. Yeah. It was supposed to end with Maximus and Proximo fighting to the death which would have been really emotional yeah. because he's brought him there and he was freed and he, he and you could see Commodus bringing him back in just to be a dickhead. And I think that would have been really powerful and that would have really worked. But they have to rework it, reshift yeah. certain things. And you can see certain bits of the script are just kind of stepping stones to the set pieces, in my opinion. So it works, but it works on a very, very basic level. Yeah, I think the writing is good without being great for the most part. The story is solid and well told. The characters are there and their motivations are clear from start to finish. So the building blocks are all there. However, I wouldn't call it exactly massively original or inspired from a narrative point of view. It's full of the tropes from ancient epics, the evil ruler, the hero with a murdered family, the gladiator slave revolt. We've seen all that before. And thematically, I'm not sure there's a great deal going on beyond what we see on the screen. Is there? No. 
could have commentated on class and society maybe, but it doesn't. And that would have been fine if it was telling a historically accurate story, but it doesn't do that either. No. So it seems like the point of the film is to show us the glory of Rome on the big screen and give us a story that works and does the setting justice. And I think it does do that. There were big issues during production with the script that we're going to talk about. And I don't think that shows too badly with what we get on the screen. So yeah, the writing certainly isn't bad. Far from it, but it's probably the least good thing about the movie yeah, for me, I think. Definitely, same. Yeah, very much the same because, like, if I'm going to see a Ridley Scott film called Gladiator, I'm not going to go in expecting to see, like, a real investigation of, of the politics of ancient Rome at no. the time. You know, for one, that I'll go and watch I Claudius. You know, I want <laughs> a film called Gladiator. No I want to see big fuck off action sequences. <laughs> I want to see Russell Crowe wrestling tigers. I want to see people getting split in half by massive swords attached to chariot wheels. Yeah. And that's what the film delivers. It tells the story on a visual level rather than a script level, which I think is what Wesley yeah. was saying. And it does, like, at the beginning when you've got Commodus with the senators and they're going on about the Republic, I'm just saying, oh, come on, you're not really going to tell your story about that, are you? So it kind of makes these, like, half-hearted attempts to do something a bit relevant to real life, I guess, talking about politics, but none of that really works. But what does work for me is two things. First of all, it's the emotional heart of it and setting up the stakes of the film, which is, you know, the hero and the villain and what the villain has done to the hero, that all makes sense and it's really strong. That actually you totally feel every emotional beat and you feel Maximus's grief as he goes on and that's in the writing and that's good. And the other thing I do like about it is for a film of this genre, it's surprisingly quotable. You Mm. don't really expect to get a lot Mm. of quotes from films like this and I think you do with Gladiator. So, yeah, I do like those two aspects, it's it's fine for what it is. But if someone said to me, oh, Gladiator, my favourite thing about that was the script. <laughs> I, I wonder if they'd actually seen it. You know? yeah. I think, well, what are I you think it's like George Lucas would have seen this and after when he's writing like the Star Wars prequels and going, a Senate, mm, a Republic. Ooh, this, this, sounds, <laughs> this sounds great. The, the script's amazing. And I think George Lucas would have liked this for the script, which is why he's shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Attack of the Clones has a big Colosseum in it as well, doesn't it? Exactly. He's totally it does, ripped yeah. it off. He's ripped off the yeah. screenplay to Gladiator, which is the only thing you shouldn't rip off on Gladiator. <laughs> <laughs> so three writers are credited on Gladiator, as I mentioned, David Franzoni, John Logan, and William Nicholson. But they weren't a writing team. They worked on the movie separately. So would you like to hear how that happened? Go on, then. I mean, it's not a particularly interesting story. No, but I'd, 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 I'd rather not, then. <laughs> <laughs> it's never stopped us before, John. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly hasn't. So David Franzoni originally started developing the story back in the 70s. He got the idea from a book called Those Who Are About to Die by Daniel yeah. P. Mannix. It was about mm-hmm. the Roman games, so the Colosseum and Gladiators. Then in the 90s, Franzoni wrote Amistad about the North American slave trade directed by Spielberg. Yeah. He yeah. told Spielberg the idea for Gladiator and he loved it. Yeah, when Spielberg was talking, we had like three questions about it. He was like, "Is it about Roman gladiators? Like, not not American or Japanese or anything else? He's like, <laughs> not Jet and Wolf? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, Roman gladiators." And he's like, "Do we see the Colosseum?" He's like, "Yes." He's like, "Fighting with swords and animals and stuff." And he's like, "Yes." He's like, "Great, let's make it." <laughs> the big That's kid. It. That's it. Swords and animals and stuff. <laughs> So make it they did. Franzoni wrote a draft in 1997, but Ridley Scott didn't like Franzoni's dialogue much. 
So hired John Logan, who had just written Any Given Sunday to rewrite Gladiator. Yep. It was Logan who made the decision to kill off Maximus' family as motivation. Yeah, I mean, it, it's infamous how troubled this film was with these script problems, wasn't it? And, and it got to the point where the cast were complaining about it when they started filming, and, and Crows actually said, when they started, he had th- they had 32 pages to go on, and that was Jesus it. Jesus wow. Christ. 100, 100, million, 100 million budget on 32 pages. You see Crazy. shitting himself, yeah. Scotland. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, didn't bother him, like. But no. what he did do, he got um, William Nicholson in, who'd written First Night, and he brought an element. I mean, Wes, you mentioned one of them, but he, he made Maximus more sensitive. He yeah. emphasised the friendship he forges with Juba. Yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. kind of gladiator trainer, which I think is a really good part of the film, actually. Um, and he added in all the afterlife stuff as well. So Maximus had a motivation beyond just killing Commodus. There was something beyond that re So he brought all that in. First night. I mean, we've got problems with his script. Who wrote that yeah. forgotten piece of shit about King Arthur? Let's get it's him in. Gear. It's brilliant first night, man. I trusted you, loved you, and you betrayed me. It's fucking great. You'll sort it out. And Connie Nielsen as well, who played Lucilla, said that when she first saw the script, it made references to museums and the police, which weren't even a thing back then. Like Connie Nielsen was, she was like... The go-to of like Roman history, she was so interested in it. She was almost like a real scholar of like Roman history. And then they yeah. went, "Oh, the police are there." She was like, "Who? Sting? <laughs> <laughs> Stuart Copeland? Are they doing the soundtrack? Play the Colosseum? The police? Yeah, imagine <laughs> just like ah, oh, don't stand so close to me when the tigers are there. That would have been fucking incredible." <laughs> <laughs> Every little thing she does is Maximus. That would be lovely. Ah, very good. <laughs> I mean, that is though pretty shoddy, like a research. That's yeah. the whole thing, isn't it? <laughs> the police. Yeah. <laughs> the police. <laughs> well, after all that, for writing Gladiator, David Franzoni, John Logan, and William Nicholson were nominated for an Oscar. Blimey, lost out too. Do you know who? Anyone else? <laughs> Traffic. <laughs> it was Cameron Crowe, almost famous. Almost oh, famous. Lovely. Oh, nice, lovely. So mixed bag on the writing, it seems then. Some of it's really good, some not great. Script problems, Oscar nominations, and slagged off by the greatest actor of all time. Yeah. (laughs) Well, got to start somewhere. (laughs) Moving on from the writing to the music, and the composers on Gladiator were Hans Zimmer and Lisa Gerrard. Hans Zimmer, we know, and have talked about, of course. At this point, he was already an Oscar winner for The Lion King. Lisa Gerrard, though, how much do we know about her? Very Not a great little. deal. Not a great deal. So Zimmer was originally planning to use an Israeli singer called Ofra Haza for the yes. score after working with her on The Prince of Egypt. Yeah. But Ofra Haza died before she was able to record, and so Lisa Gerrard was chosen instead. She'd right. worked on The Insider with Crow, and mm. she and Zimmer composed the music for Gladiator together. So nice. how good is it, though, the music on Gladiator? It's sensationally good it's overwhelmingly good it's (laughs) it's so good that i listened to it today and wept at work because it's just (laughs) it's just got the grandeur but it's also really small and emotional when you need it to be it just kind of taps into maximus perfectly it's got that real force and then it's got that real emotion it's got that sense of afterlife and it's got that sense of now it's just Hans Zimmer really kind of pushing what he needs to push and everyone's like is that Enya? You're like, no it's not Enya 
<laughs> but everyone thinks it is Enya, but it's not. It's Lisa Gerrard, which is fantastic. I mean, for me, it's it's top five movie scores of all time. Wow. Easily. Easily. Wow, it's just mm. absolutely fucking flawless from start to finish. You can put it on when you're cooking the tea, and the tea is going to be fucking incredible. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're really going to concentrate. Like, that gravy's never been that dense. Like, it's just, it's not got that flavor. There's the right amount of salt and pepper because you just, it makes you present. And in all seriousness, I think it is Hans Zimmer's absolute pinnacle. Huge. It totally makes the film. I think you need to get off the fence, Westy. Bloody hell. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I agree. The music's fantastic. Get off the fence, but I agree. <laughs> Bold and spectacular, and sometimes it's soft and emotional. Yeah, there's times when the music carries the film for me. Oh, we played him as the battle at the start, which is one of those big pieces. But my favourites, I think, are the Lisa Gerard ones, the softer, more yeah. evocative pieces. There's mm-hmm. several which are stunning, but I think my favourite is the one called Elysium. Elysium play is just as Maximus is dying in the Colosseum at the end. Oh, Gives me yeah. goosebumps and puts me in that yeah. moment in the film whenever I hear it. Lisa Gerard's the unsung hero of the film for me. Her music and voice is just totally stunning. I think Scott must have been thanking his lucky stars when he heard the music that the two of them came up with. Oh, yeah, definitely. Do you know who was approached to do it instead of Lisa Gerard? Was who? it the police? Nope, it wasn't. The, <laughs> yeah, it was just Sting by himself doing Fields of Gold as his hand went, went through the wheat. <laughs> fields of wheat. <laughs> fields of wheat. No, it was uh, Pavarotti was approached, but he turned wow. it down. That would have been outrageous. Well, what, Zimmer would have made it work, but I'd much rather yeah. Lisa Gerard in there. Ness and Doma in there. Phenomenal work by Zim. I'm, I completely agree with everything you guys have said. I mean, I had the sound rock on while I was writing my notes up for this, and I didn't weep, unlike Wesley. Well, you should have. Tell you what, I've never been so pumped in my life. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just wanted to go out on the street and like sort of fight with someone random. <laughs> Quite easy and see him. I wouldn't fancy chances, to be honest. <laughs> 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 I decided to stay in, indoors instead. That would have been badly for me. Promise you that. The soundtrack is the film because it's huge and it's bombastic and it sweeps you along. But it can go from that to being really yeah. emotional and really delicate and small and down worth. And it all blends together. It when, mm. when in some ways it probably shouldn't, it should feel a bit disjointed in some ways, but it never does. And for me, like that bit at the end, the, the very last bit of um music when the when the credits roll and you pull out of the Coliseum yeah. and Ridley Scott's name appears, that oh absolute shivers puts a lump in my thought every time that mm. absolutely wonderful piece of music. So yeah, the whole thing. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Also, as well, Hans Zimmer was sued by Gustav Holtz Foundation, who said that parts of Zimmer's score were too similar to Holtz Mars, the bringer of war. Now, who cares, firstly? And secondly, it's not. And thirdly, (laughs) nobody really knows how that ended up, so it's fine. And even if it is, just be proud of it. It's in Gladiator, who gives a flying fuck. Yeah, that piece by Holst is absolutely massive. Well, it's, yeah, huge. it's huge. huge. Enormous. I've heard similar pieces of that, though, in hundreds of movies, especially yeah. like science fiction movies. Yeah. Everyone just rips it off left and right. Oh, well, yeah, John Williamson Star Wars takes a lot from it, doesn't he? Yeah, mm-hmm. he does, yeah. So no Oscar wins for the music for Gladiator, but it was nominated. Lost out to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon by Tan Dun. Mm. 
Also, due to the Academy regulations at the time, only one composer could be nominated for the Oscars. In the case of Gladiator, that was Zimmer. So Lisa Gerard was just left hung out the dry. Oh, that's rubbish. That is rubbish. They did win the Golden Globe together, though, didn't they? They did. They did. Yeah. Moving from music to visuals and the director of photography on Gladiator was John Matheson. Mm-hmm. He didn't exactly have a huge portfolio under his belt as DP at this point. And prior no. to Gladiator, the biggest movies he'd worked on were Twin Town and Plunkett and McLean. Oh, yeah. One hell of a step up for John Matheson then. Yeah. How did he handle it? What do we think of the cinematography on Gladiator? Yeah, I think he handles it really well. Um, I think I would say, though, if you're the DP for Ridley Scott, you pretty much just do what you're told, don't you? Because he is someone who can do your job twice as good as you can. So I don't yeah. know, I could be wrong, but I can't imagine this is a film where he brought a lot to this personally or suggested stuff to Ridley Scott on the day. I would imagine it was all there for him to do. But that work has still got to be excellent. And he's got to cover a hell of a lot in this film. He's got to go from Germany, full of mud, rain, snow, to Italy in the blazing heat. He's got to go for these really epic huge shots to really intimate personal drama and i actually really like some of the close-ups in this film i think some of those are really really well shot the um am i not merciful scene that's really great use of close-ups there the conversation that maximus has with marcus aurelius in in the tent that's really well shot and there's one bit I really love where Lucilla is walking through the palace and Commodus starts speaking and you can't work out where he is or where it's coming from. And he's actually to the left of screen sitting down and mm. he's, he's just sat so still and it's composed so well, that shot. You just can't work out where he is for a few seconds. It's, it's always disorientated to me. I think that that's excellent as well. So I think the biggest compliment I could pay Matheson apart from the fact that he went on to work for Scott a few times afterwards, is that Scott has looked at everything that he needs to accomplish in this film, which is really complicated visually, but it, and it's got to be incredibly cinematic, but very personal at the same time. And Matheson is the man he picked to do it, so he must have had some faith in him. And to be fair, I think he repairs it. Yeah, I mean, John Matheson might have been making a big step up for the film, but it doesn't show to me, I don't think. It looks stunning, start to finish. The big battle sequence in Germania at the start, that really reminds me of the beach landing sequence in Saving Private Ryan. Mm -hmm. I think it's maybe the close-ups and the slow motion, but always reminds me of that. I love the lighting of that whole segment in Northern Europe. You know it's freezing cold because we see snow, but it feels freezing cold because of the lighting. That's great. And then once we get to Rome, it doesn't let up. Stunning wide shots of the city and much more warm hues and lighting. I love the helicopter type shots of the Colosseum. I love the swooping crane shots inside the Colosseum. I love the close-ups during the more personally dramatic moments. I think it's all just fantastic. Looks incredible start to finish. Yeah, I think like Matt touched on, if you're a DP for Ridley Scott, much like if you're a, if you're like John Alcott and you're shooting for Kubrick, I think you're just somebody who can get the job done and somebody who's dependable and somebody who has mm. a really solid work ethic and somebody who's very trustworthy. And I think Matheson must be all of those especially you know he worked on robin hood after it and hannibal and matchstick men and kingdom of heaven all the like four or five really scott films after this so he's obviously a very dependable guy but again like matt said he hasn't really got a style you don't bring him on board he's not a roger deacons or he's not a chief or he's not like you know a greg fraser he's not one of these people where you go i need your vision on this everything is really scott's mm. vision 100 percent. and the way this is shot and the way it is delivered and the way that he actually delivers Ridley Scott's vision shouldn't be overlooked, I don't think. And there's some really classic light in here. The amount of times that Connie Nielsen's lit with that strip over her eyes 
which is classic, like, you know, the Cleopatra, the classic, like, you know, 50s, mm. 60s look, that beauty look and the way that the light's coming through the windows. It's very similar to Blade Runner, but they're not using any hazes. They're not using any smoke. They've got to get that light in in a certain way, using filters and whatever else. And this was shot spherical as well, and I think Ridley Scott was very much wanted to do that and didn't want to shoot it anamorphic like he did with Alien or like he did with Blade Runner and wanted to make it, you know, to, to, to have this grandeur without having that reduced frame. And I think there's some really, really excellent, excellent shots in this. But at the same time, you've got to go, well, it's Ridley Scott. What can you do? Could Ridley Scott work with Roger Deakins? I don't think he could. Could he work with Chief? Mm-hmm. I don't think he could. I don't think he could work with someone who has their own vision or who has their own visual flair. I think Ridley Scott is kind yeah. of a, a, a... He's like the, the hooded claw from Penelope Pitstop. He's like a, a DP <laughs> in disguise. <laughs> he's like, hey, get him, Billy. You know, he's like, oh, he's just kind of like, yeah, I've got this. I've got, I've got a director of photography, but I don't need him. You know what I mean? But it looks beautiful. It's very, very, very watchable. And yeah, if Matheson puts his name on it, which he which he should, then he should be applauded for it. So the first time really Scott and John Matheson wrote together. So what's your favourite shot of theirs in the film? My favourite shot is when he's just defeated Tigress of Gaul. And he looks up and he wants to get the thumbs up or the thumbs down from Commodus. And Commodus gives him the thumbs down as if he's going to kill him. And then you get that. It's a blink and you'll miss it. He turns round and there's that. It's a beautiful mid shot. And he's got that axe above his head. And all of that light behind him is just bleeding in in strips. It's just these like three or four, five, six strips that are just over Maximus' shoulder. He just throws that axe away. Just this act of mm. defiance, but this it's almost as if he's got God on his shoulders. Like he's got this backup <laughs> beautiful moment where it's like, oh, and it's just like he's got this, it's just like <laughs> throws that axe away. He's like, fuck you. And it shouldn't be that beautiful, but it's a beautiful moment in, in this carnage. That is my favorite shot. You could pause that and frame it. It's just beautiful. <laughs> it is stunning. Mm. Matt, what's your favorite shot in the film? It's towards the end. It's right before you get that final showdown between Maximus and Commodus where they're on that stage and they're being raised up into the arena. So the light is coming down nice. through the hatch and all the rose petals are falling yeah, down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's excellent because he got Commodus and he, he's pulled that sneaky little bitch move on Maximus and stabbed him. So he's looking really smoke and like looking up into the light as if yeah. he's like ascending to glory. Yeah. It just looks absolutely fantastic. It, it sets the end up, the end fight up perfectly. And I suppose like what Wesley says, I could frame that shot. I'd happily have that on my wall. Yeah, those elevators we're seeing in the film are real. They really had those back in Roman times. Mm. Yep. I think the police came up on one when they played the Coliseum. <laughs> <laughs> Roxanne! <laughs> for his work on Gladiator, John Matheson was nominated for his first Oscar, losing out to Peter Powell for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And after the film, he went on to work on other big projects like Hannibal, The Phantom of the Opera, Kingdom of Heaven, Robin Hood, X-Men First Class, and there's others as well. So a big and very accomplished team working behind the scenes on Gladiator. The only big name there is probably Hans Zimmer. And Lisa Gerard was robbed by the Academy, but generally strong work from them, writers David Franzoni, John Logan, and William Nicholson, and the DP, John Matheson. Yep, it all came yeah. together nicely, yep. thankfully. The end. By the end of Gladiator, the big gladiatorial battles are done and the narrative starts to tie up. 
we're talking about the final and climactic Colosseum fight between Maximus and Commodus, but before that, we're looking at the slave revolt and the betrayal of Maximus. Yeah. So Senator Gracchus and Lucilla team up with Maximus in an attempt to overthrow Commodus and reinstate Marcus Aurelius' dream of Rome and conspire and conspire behind the emperor's back. In this sequence, we see Maximus escape, the gladiators take on the Roman army, and Proximo killed, along with Maximus' right-hand man Cicero, before Maximus has returned to his shackles. It all kicks off, and Proximo's in danger of becoming a good man. Yeah, I love this sequence. I love the way that this builds, and it gives you a little bit more of a of a scope and how everything comes together. But it just it 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 does it builds the tension really really well, and then you find out that Commodus knows what's going on. He takes that out on Lucilla. You've got that "Am I not merciful?" bit, which is just yeah. so powerful, and he's just like right in her face, like how she didn't punch him. <laughs> if that's improvised, <laughs> I yeah. would have just slapped him. I'm like, get up your face, like just naturally. <laughs> <laughs> no matter what what happened on set, but like, and there's some really nice twists in here. I love then you see Cicero on the horse, and you think Maximus is going to get away, and he's yeah. going to do it. And the death of Proximo is great. Just his last words are shadows and dust. Yeah, it kind of brings everything together and you're just waiting for the big final set piece. Yeah, we're in total Spartacus territory now with the slaves battling the Romans. There's probably a deleted scene somewhere where someone starts shouting, I'm Maximus. <laughs> it does feel <laughs> like its own thing, though, not yeah. just a rip-off, and I like it a lot. Proximo refusing to let the guards into the compound and instead freeing the slaves is really satisfying. Completion of his arc and then him being brutally stabbed to death is really tough to take. Mm-hmm. As is the moment just before this, where Commodus turns the tables and gets Lucilla to confess to everything. He comes out with the busy little Bayes monologue, and it's Phoenix's best moment in the film for me, along with the scene where he kills Marcus Aurelius. He's absolutely brilliant. I feel it when Cicero's killed, even though he's barely been in the film, and I'm always disappointed that we don't get to see Maximus ride into the city with his 5,000 men, yeah. as he planned. But, yeah, that would have been amazing. Yeah, but Scott did the right thing, though, as the end we get with Maximus and Commodus is just perfection. And it's all set up here. Really great stuff. Yeah. Yeah, really exciting. I love how it just takes you from one extreme to the other because you think, right, Gracchus is on side now. Maximus is, is uh, Maximus knows his army are just waiting for him. It's all coming together. And then Lucius opens his little yap and tells Commodus everything that's going on. So then Commodus reacts. Oh, yeah. And I love that bit where he puts the um, he puts the snake in Gaius's bed to kill him off. That's just really horrible, watching that snake slither yeah. in the sheets. I really like gives me the creeps watching that bit. Um I love all I love how it's shot, like when they're riding into the slave compound at night. I think it all looks fantastic. And it's just great how they're all united behind Maximus now. They're just like one solid unit. There's not one dissenting voice in there. Like, they don't even question it. Of course, we're going to fight. Um, I mean, you mentioned Cicero, but I'm always quite sad to see Harkin go. He's a big German guy. Yeah. He he doesn't get a lot of lines, but he's still really memorable. And he gets killed. He gets by like five arrows in the chest, whatever. Mm. Five arrows. That's all you need. Well, that's what takes (laughs) him, doesn't it? So, yeah, I'm I'm sad to see him go. Sad to see Proximo go. I mean... Obviously, they had their hands tied with what they could do with that scene. Getting in that shadows and dust, it, it kind of works. But then when you realise it's quite clearly taken from an earlier scene because you can see the people behind them, the gladiators in the tunnel at the time, it sticks out a bit. But what else could they do, really? But yeah, the whole thing, really enjoyable. And it, it just feels like you're really set up for the finale. 
And the one thing as well in this whole sequence towards the end is that it's one thing that really, really pisses me off, and that's the performance from the kid who does who plays yeah. Lucius, and he's having that sword fight. It's when he's going there, yeah. there, 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 <laughs> there, 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 there for about twenty minutes. There, 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 there. I've never noticed, there, there. but I and then he goes, and then he goes, and then I got you like a little prick. <laughs> there, 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 and then I got you. I wish he would die at that point. Like, I, I, I honestly ruins the film for us at that point. And I, I quit, I'm quickly out of it. But, oh, God, that is so yeah, annoying. So we mentioned there that this is the moment that Proximo was killed. Proximo was a slave trader who buys Maximus and has him trained up as a gladiator. And as a former champion gladiator himself, becomes a mentor of sorts to Maximus. Yep. He's played by the one and only Oliver Reed, who famously passed away during filming. Reed said that he took the role because he fancied a trip to London to see a couple of shows. <laughs> we might not get a chance to talk about Oliver Reed again, so what are our thoughts on him in Gladiator? It, it's just really poignant, isn't it? Because I think Oliver Reed, I think a lot of people have forgotten what a real talent he was, and obviously he did struggle with his own demons, and I think that did lead to him losing a lot of years to drink basically when he could have been doing great work mm. instead. And if he hadn't done that, he, he would have been, and he should have been talked about as Richard House has talked about or Peter O'Toole or any of those guys. And it's sad that he wasn't. So when you watch him in this, it feels like this was going to be the film that kickstarted his career again. It was going to be a comeback. He was proving to people how good he was because he does. He makes Proxima such a standout character he gives him like lots of pathos and lots of wit and wisdom, and he, he's just—he pretty much steals the film in every scene he's in. Which, when you're in a film with mm. Russell Crowe and Joaquin Phoenix on the farm they're in, that's pretty impressive. But th- there's also like a couple of behind-the-scenes stories that sum him up for me. The first one is that apparently he really, really took against Russell Crowe right from the off. Like yeah. Russell Crowe said, mm-hmm. I didn't do anything. I, I tried to like be friendly with him, but he just didn't like me. <laughs> I suspect it might be a jealousy thing. He's maybe looking at Crowe thinking, you know what? 30 years ago, that would have been my role. I would have been in your shoes. Yeah. yeah. Like to the point where he actually challenged Crowe to a fight at one point, which, <laughs> which would have been ridiculous. <laughs> and the other one yeah. is he said to Ridley Scott, look, I'll do whatever you want. Whatever scenes you want, whatever lines you want, up until five o'clock in the afternoon. And then after that, my time is my own. And Ridley Scott went, yeah, fine. So, yeah, it's really poignant watching him, but what a way to sign off a career. Yeah, so Oliver Reed died three weeks before production ended. A legendary Hellraiser. He died, fittingly maybe, in a pub during a break in filming. And he died after drinking eight pints of German lager, a dozen shots of rum, half a bottle of whiskey, a few shots of cognac, and after beating five Royal Navy sailors at arm wrestling. Absolutely <laughs> nuts. Fell off his chair and said, I don't feel very well. <laughs> I bet you don't. <laughs> a clause in the movie's insurance contract would have let Ridley Scott reshoot all of Reed's scenes, but most of the actors and crew were exhausted, and Scott didn't want to cut Reed from the movie, so William Nicholson was flown back in to do rewrites, and a body double in CGI were used to give Reed's character a different ending to what he originally had. I think it works really well. It never feels like we're not watching Oliver Reed, I don't think. And the way things end for the character works well narratively as well. I wouldn't have ever known there'd been rewrites that late in the day. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely love him. I, I love him <laughs> in this as as the character that he plays because he just plays Oliver Reed. Yeah. He doesn't yeah. really play a Proximo. He just plays himself. And he always kind of has. And he always spoke to himself as if he was this incredible, magnificent kind of 
method actor, but he never really was. He was just a great actor and a great personality. And I mean, if you watch him in The Devils, or if you watch him in The Four Musketeers, which is a classic, or if you watch him in like Oliver, even he owns Oliver, he's just yeah, Oliver yeah. Reed. Oh, Oliver. Oliver. It, might as, yeah. it might as well just be called Oliver yeah, Reed. Yeah. It's just, like, <laughs> it, it, it's just himself in it and he's himself but he's such a good actor because he just owns the space and he owns the lines and he gives them so much gravitas and so much weight and just so much he just adds this production value even when he's talking about you should see the coliseum spaniard mm. and you can see he gets the line wrong and then repeats it again when he says it, it rises up like th- you're gonna say thunder it rises up like th- like 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 a storm mm. Like the Thunder God himself. Now you see, but you just look at it and you go, fuck me, he's completely owned that scene. There's nobody else in it. And then when Crow leaves that scene, he turns around to the window and just opens yeah. his arms to the yeah. window. Yeah, it's great. And just and just owns the whole fucking yeah. thing. He's like, this is mine. Like, that's how powerful a personality he was. That's his whole performance in this film. He, he dives into the film and embeds himself only about an inch into it because <laughs> he hasn't got any more room to do that. Yeah. But he stays there. It's impossible to ignore. It's easy to forget. But once you see it, and once you know how good all of his nuances are and all of his little bits are, you just realize how great of an actor he was. Just read Hellraisers if you haven't read that book. It's absolutely incredible. It's just one after the other. Just when he went into that seafood restaurant and started freeing the lobsters because he thought it was unfair. So he just got all the lobsters out of the tank and started pushing them out the toilet window. It's just there's so many stories like that. He's just unparalleled as a human being. But in, it, but in this film, unparalleled as an actor. I don't think you need to see Oliver Reed in anything else. You watch him in Gladiator and go, that's Oliver Reed. Well, also, apparently, I'm not sure how much I believe this, but I read it online. When the film was announced, Scott didn't want Oliver Reed for Proximo. And he did consider somebody else. Okay. Arnold Schwarzenegger. I know it was Arnold. Yeah, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Imagine. Oh, God. Should have had Arnold as Maximus. I've waited all this time for you to come up with that. <laughs> I think Arnold should have been Tigress of Gaul. That would have been yeah. sweet. That would have worked. As we approach the end of the film, Scott begins to carefully pull the threads together. A few characters go during the Slave Revolt, and all that's left now is for one final showdown in the Colosseum. Here we go. Proxima, are you in danger of becoming a good man? So, after Maximus is recaptured and taken back to the slave quarters beneath the Colosseum, Commodus pays him a visit and tells him he's going to face him in the arena, but not before literally stabbing him in the back to weaken him. It doesn't work. Maximus kills Commodus and joins his family in the afterlife before being carried out of the Colosseum, a legend of Rome. Mm -hmm. Our final time in the Colosseum and the final time with the two main characters thoughts on this yep. one i think by this point the film's made a little bit of a rod for its own back because we know Commodus isn't really going to be any kind of match physically for maximus which is why he does the stabs him before the go up but i think everything else compensates for that so like in terms of spectacle yeah okay it might be a little bit anticlimactic but what you're getting said is just how well it lands the emotional beats if the same because you want to see maximus kill Commodus. So much by this point. I mean, I think you said it earlier, yeah. John. No, yeah. no death would be too good for Commodus at this point. So <laughs> it's just so enormously satisfying to see Maximus take him out. And I do like how, actually, when it comes down to it, Commodus does—he he isn't any match for him. You know, he's just made it look like such like the the small and ineffectual person that he is. So I do like yeah. that. And 
And what I really love is just before they start fighting is all the sound drops and you just see a Maximus take that big breath in. He's just like... Yeah, just mm, gathering himself yeah. together because he knows he, he's obviously losing blood. He doesn't know how long he's got left, and he's just got to focus. This is it. This is everything he's been building towards for the last few weeks or months or however long it's took to get him here. And he just has to gather himself one more time. And I love that about it. So yeah, there's bigger and better fight scenes in the film, but when that music kicks in and they carry Maximus out of there, and no one looks twice at Commodus lying in the dust. He's already been forgotten about. Yeah. It's probably yeah. the most emotional scene Ridley Scott has ever directed, and to be fair, he absolutely nails it. Yeah, I think as a climax, this is just such a perfect way to end things. At the end of it all, everything is stripped away, and we're left with Maximus and Commodus fighting in the Colosseum. Perfect. The fight's really well choreographed. Maximus killing Commodus in the way that he does works perfectly, and I think the whole thing is just a really satisfying way to end it all, and I really mm-hmm. feel it. I feel it when Maximus relays the wishes of Marcus Aurelius to Quintus, despite barely being able mm-hmm. to stand. I feel yeah. it when his final words are, I tell Lucilla her son's safe. I mean, is this like the greatest guy ever? Or what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really is. And I feel it when Juba says he'll see Maximus again. Oh, yeah, totally. I yeah. find it all really moving, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's yeah. a lot of great things going on. Crow and the cast are great. The inside of the Colosseum looks ridiculous. But it's the music that's doing the most of the work here for me. From the point where Maximus is standing with his hand out just before he collapses to the end credits, there's a run of musical pieces in the background that is just incredible. It goes from Elysium, I mentioned before, into one called Honor Him, and then into Now We Are Free. Next time you watch it, if you've not noticed, pay attention to the music. It carries the film across the line for me. It's just stunning and delivers yeah. all the emotional beats at the end. And I mean, that last shot inside the Colosseum where Maximus is carried away like a hero, everybody rises, and Commodore's body is just left behind, ignored in a heap. The whole thing, yeah. genuinely one of the most satisfying climaxes to a film I've seen. I absolutely love it. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. Just imagine if they'd been brothers. <laughs> <laughs> Obsessed with this. Like... <laughs> Would have been exactly the same. <laughs> Would have been exactly the same. <laughs> there's, there's nothing you can say about, about the last, what, 20, 25 minutes of Gladiator that it's, that's going to be detrimental to the whole film it's absolutely ticks every single box and there's so many things that are brought home here that people don't realize or how clever it is you know smile for me now brother and he actually says that mm. he thinks he's yeah. going to get away with it he's he's fixed the fight as he as Commodus used to do but the great thing for me is that hidden knife they both die by the same weapon. Yeah. That's what he kills Commodus oh, with. Yeah. So if he hadn't stabbed him, he wouldn't have it. So if he didn't have that dis- that disadvantage, he wouldn't have the advantage, yeah. which is so clever. Yeah. It's just really well played. And I love the way Quintus as well. It doesn't get enough here because he, he's never, ever the good guy. He's always a bastard, <laughs> like the bodyguard. Like yeah. <laughs> He's always a piece of shit. Are you armed, Quintus? Yeah. yeah, he's like, sheathe your swords, sheathe your swords. Yeah. And he's like, no, give him a fair fight. So he comes back and he's on Maximus's side and everyone kind of knows that he's at a disadvantage. And this whole sequence is so well done. It's so well choreographed, like you guys have said. Music is brilliant. And the one thing that I really, really love about this sequence is it's a, it's a climactic sword fight where there's no dialogue. Yeah. And what I hate, mm. hate, hate in films is when there's a fight with a sword, especially a sword fight or a lightsaber fight or... It's something of close combat, a fist fight, and then they come together and they have a little bit of a line of dialogue. Yeah. Rome will never be yours. It will always be a senate. Rome will always be <laughs> a republic. That. And then they push each other away. It's just, uh, you know, like... Wes, do you have read the first draft of the film? <laughs> I have. I wrote it. That's why. 
but that's the thing. I think the first draft would have had them things in it. It's just oh, so totally. cliched yeah. and it's so st- it's like so Pirates of the Caribbean yes. where they're all like come together and it's like, what about this? And I I will never be free of you and oh she will always be mine. Never. It's just I fucking hate that. But this is the exact opposite. This is exactly what you want from a climactic sword fight where it's just shouting and grunting and just fucking yes let's get this done and that's what works for me and that's why the climax works so well because there's no cheese here there's no ham here it's just 100 percent beautifully shot beautifully choreographed beautifully directed beautifully acted beautifully played out the music kicks fucking ass it's a perfect finale to any film yeah. it's absolutely fucking great yeah mate i think we all love that final shot as well but the interesting thing about that is that originally that was going to be proximo in the last scene as well Bearing those figurines in the sand, obviously, that to rewrite that when he passed away. So that's how it becomes Juba at the end before he heads home to see his family in Africa. And I think that's a really nice touch, actually. I do like how he's in a similar position to Maximus in the film, but he's the one that gets to go home. Yeah, it could have been great with Proximo in there, but I don't think I'd change it, to be honest. I think it works really well there. It's Juba. Mm-hmm. He's more yeah, of the yeah. common man, and it shows how Maximus touched yeah. everyone, not just the Senators yeah. and the noblemen and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And then he says he's going to see him again, yeah, but not oh, yet, yeah, which means that Juba's going to look for his family. Yeah. And it just it has that extra story and that extra element, which works really well. But on, like, the death of Maximus, apparently he didn't die in the original version of the script, and Ridley Scott and Russell Crowe changed it on the set. Right. So I've got a quote, <laughs> I've got a quote from Crowe. This is fucking great. This is, like, something I would say. Self-praise, no praise. <laughs> this is great, I would say it. <laughs> taking something totally out of context and putting it within that context yeah brilliant (laughs) I remember Ridley coming up to me on set and saying look the way this is shaping up I don't see how you live this character is about one act of pure vengeance for his wife and child and once he's accomplished that what does he do does he end up running a fucking pizzeria by the Coliseum (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what I think. What else does he do? What does he do after that yeah. point? He's not going to take over. He's already said he wants out. He has to die. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Narratively, he has to go, doesn't he? What is the left? Yeah, it? definitely. But I think they regretted that as well, because we are going to talk about it in a minute, but there are sequels that have come up. And I do think Russell Crowe is kind of pissed off that he did die in the film, even though it is perfect, but I do think he would love to relive that role again. So we're at the end of Gladiator then. Scott pulls things together very nicely and with those two sequences, the Slave Revolt and Maximus killing Commodus before succumbing to his own wounds and rejoining his family, it certainly has some power. Yes, it does. It certainly does. and awards. We said right at the start of the show that Gladiator was an instant and iconic classic and the stats and figures from the time back that up as well. On a budget of $103 million, Gladiator took $457.6 million at the box office and it made back its budget within two weeks of its release. Could have built four coliseums with that. <laughs> Critics-wise, the film had some mixed responses. Roger Ebert, do you think Roger liked it? No. Uh, I think he, he kind of half like I'll give him like two two and a half. He gave Gladiator two stars out of four, uh, and said it looks muddy, fuzzy, and indistinct. 
the writing employs depression as a substitute for personality and believes that if characters are bitter and morose enough, we won't notice how dull they are. Well, maybe in ancient Rome, yeah, depression is a character trait. Because look at the fucking state of the place. (laughs) That's why it looks muddy. Yeah, exactly. Empire Magazine did like it, giving it four stars out of five, and they said, while it's all grand opera and driven by sweeping gestures and pompous overwritten dialogue, the sheer dynamism of the action, coupled with Hans Zimmer's lavish score in the force field of Crow, still makes this a fearsome competitor in the summer movie stakes. Mm. Yes. Agreed. Yep. Okay. Very much. And the Hollywood Reporter said, emphasizing brawn over brain, Gladiator is an impressive accomplishment in its recreation of the Roman Empire, but by the Gladiator games themselves, it is designed for mindless spectacle to please the multitudes. Mm. Fair enough. Whatever. On Rotten Tomatoes, Gladiator has 77% from critics and 87% from audiences. Mm-hmm. And on IMDb, it has an impressive 8.5 out of 10, which leaves it 43rd in the IMDb Greatest Movies list. Yeah. To recap on the Oscars, Gladiator won five, which for, for Best Picture, Best Actor for Crow, Best Costume Design for Janty Yates, Best Sound and Best Visual Effects. And it was nominated for seven. They were Best Director, Best Supporting Actor for Phoenix, Best Original Screenplay, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, and Best Score for Hans Zimmer. And Lisa Gerard. Let's put that right. Yeah, yeah let's put that yeah. right. Yeah. So, I'm not sure you can really argue with much of that. Acclaim across the board, mostly for Gladiator. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Slightly disappointing from reception from critics, maybe. But despite that, it's gone down as the biggest sword and sandals classic this century, I think. Oh, easily. Oh, easily, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not much competition, to be fair. No. Has it? <laughs> no. Wrath no. of the Titans. <laughs> Kingdom of Heaven. No. <laughs> sequels and influence. There's been no sequels to Gladiator, of course, but disturbingly, we came very close once or twice to getting one. Mm. Have you heard about these projects? I've heard a couple... So, the first one, in June 2001, after Gladiator was a huge hit, John Logan, who co-wrote Gladiator, wrote a sequel. So it was set Mm. 15 years later, and it's about an older Lucius, that's Lucilla's son, searching for the truth about his biological father. Rubbish. It also... There, 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 (laughs) there, there, there he is. It's my biological father. (laughs) That's That's the film. It also, apparently, (laughs) included the resurrection of Maximus. This isn't just nonsense. Scott oh. and Crow were both interested. Scott said never went anywhere because he preferred a grounded approach, whereas Crow was interested in making the sequel more fantastical. As recently as 2018, though, Ridley Scott was still talking about making a sequel, so watch this space, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'd rather not. You said there was a, a fantastical option as well, and there was a script for that written by Nick Cave, of all people, who I completely adore, let's be mm. honest. Have you heard about this one? I have not, but I'd fight in the Coliseum to hear about this. Oh, it'd be fantastic. So, Nick Cave wrote a sequel featuring a time-travelling Maximus. (laughs) 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 Cave dealt with... Honest to God, he's some boy. Cave dealt with the whole Maximus is dead problem by having the Roman gods reincarnate him. That already sounds pretty cool. All right, the gods <laughs> reincarnate him, that's all right. But the plan was to have him then somehow transported to World War Two. The Vietnam War, <laughs> then modern day general at the Pentagon. What? <laughs> Why? The studio rejected it. <laughs> the studio idiots. Sounds like Time Cop. <laughs> it sounds amazing to us. 
I mean, that sounds ridiculous. But we've talked before about big films that end up popular culture and how they tend to be the ones that have the biggest impact and influence. Gladiator, yeah. I think, is one of those movies. So how and where do you see its influence today or since its release? I see loads of places. I think the fact that Ridley Scott had a reinvigorated career off the back of this. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. it made household names. Certainly out of Russell Crowe really set off uh, Joaquin Phoenix to where we know him today. And just look at all the imitations that followed. Alexander, Kingdom of Heaven, Troy, mm. Exodus, absolutely loads. And even on TV, there was, I don't know if you guys ever saw it, but there was a HBO series called Rome, which was oh, yeah, yeah, years yeah. after this, uh, yeah. which was pretty good, actually. That, that, of all the things that followed, Gladiator, that's probably the best. Um, Game of Thrones, obviously, which we mentioned mm-hmm. earlier on, um, and Spartacus from a few years back. So, yeah, it was uh, really influential, I think. Yeah, I know that away from Hollywood, Gladiator had a direct impact on an increased interest in Roman history particularly in the US after it came out. The New York Times called that the gladiator effect, and books mm. like Cicero's biography and Marcus Aurelius' meditations received massive spikes in sales after Gladiator's release. And mm. film-wise, like what said they? In the years after Gladiator, we had Troy, King Arthur, Alexander, 300, The Last Samurai, Kingdom of Heaven, historical mm. epics were big news for a while. It didn't change filmmaking, I don't think, in any way, but it certainly had influence for a while, without doubt. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just exactly what you guys have said. I mean, it's taken that historical element and then adding an element of realism. And I think what that what that did was add that element of realism to these films because everything was quite fantastical before Gladiator and like the millennium kicked in and everyone kind of wanted to go back to this realistic look, this Mm. kind of realistic, Mm. you can smell it, you can touch it, you can taste it kind of vibe. And I don't think like you guys have said, I mean, you know, most of it was directed by Ridley Scott, to be fair, Kingdom of Heaven, <laughs> yeah. even like Robin Hood, yeah. Exodus, Gods and Kings. Like, and, you know, it, it, it did have that kind of vibe, but it did open up the doors to these great, fantastical set pieces and add this element of reality. And then you get that element of reality that's subjective and then it's subverted and you get the likes of 300, mm. which comes off the mm. back of Gladiator, definitely. Yeah. And yeah. then from 300, you get all of the advances towards the Marvel universe and all them big films Mm. and, Mm. you know, the use of CGI and how that was pioneered. And I don't think that should be overlooked. So I think without Gladiator and without the, you know, the groundbreaking visuals and that kind of vibe that Ridley Scott brought to it and that huge grandiose look, I don't think you would have like uh, Avengers Endgame, watch the end of that. That yeah. could be the opening battle mm-hmm. of Gladiator, but yeah, yeah. just bit just bigger on a bigger scale with three hundred mixed in. You've got that, but yeah. what what did yeah. that before Gladiator? Nothing. So it's got a huge, huge influence. If it's not massively obvious, but if you look at it from a filmmaking point of view, from a CGI point of view, from a progressive point of view, it's very, very influential. Well, like or not, there's no doubt Gladiator had a big impact, not just in Hollywood, but on general interest in the ancient Rome for a while. And judging by how Gladiator ends, you'd think there'd be no chance of a sequel. But where there's a box office, there's a way in Hollywood. So watch out for the time-traveling Maximus taking down Hitler or whatever Nick Cave comes up with. (laughs) Or whatever I come up with. I'm working on it now. (laughs) All the right movies ranking. So that is that on Gladiator. We've been through the full behind-the-scenes story, and now's the time when we decide where the film will sit in the All the Right Movies leaderboard. So, Westy, mm. do you want to kick us off? Your summary and score yeah. for Gladiator, please. Right, well, I mean, I think I've laid down how much I love this film. I do love it, and it is great. 
and it's fa- it's fantastic in fact it's just such a wonderful experience especially in the cinema especially being 19 year old and being really interested in film and walking in to see this and you just go holy shit this is my sand like this is my sword and sandals epic i now have one for my generation thank you ridley scott this is fantastic thank you russell crowe this is unreal this is what a man should be like let's all try and be more like this guy (laughs) so from that at that age it was absolutely perfect but as time goes on CGI kind of dwindles a little bit. Some elements of the story kind of, you know, you were so excited when you first saw it and it kind of dwindles a little bit and the discussions we've had about the script, some of the dialogue. This film was in the right hands and it had the right people to just fix it, I think. I don't think it was a perfect piece that was brought to them. I think this needed fixing and I think it needed a lot of attention and I think that attention was brought by Ridley Scott, by Russell Crowe, and it was saved from a pretty bad pretty simple mm. script so from that premise and you you see the the, the coliseum is incredible the spectacle's incredible the vibe of it still really works the emotion's still there i think it's a timeless story i do think it has that emotion i think the score is fucking incredible i would listen just listen to the score going for a run i'd listen to the score and have just going for a drive i'd listen to the score washing the dishes everything gets done quicker with a lot more emotion and you appreciate <laughs> the dishes you bought four years ago and you just think that's just incredible so this whole thing is a spectacle and it's wonderful but it has aged and there are some certain bits certain bits of dialogue certain bits of story that do seem clunky certain bits of cgi towards the end of the film when commodus is standing on his balcony and he turns around and roams behind him it's just mm. so bad yeah. So for that reason, it does lose a point because it's not a perfect script. It's not a perfectly realized film. It does seem a bit pushed together. But for what it is, it's absolutely massive. It's majestic. It's a 9 on 10 for me. I do love it, but it does have its flaws and it does show its age now. And for that reason, it's a 9 on 10. 9 out of 10. I thought you might be going for a 10 there, Westy, the way you were talking before. But no. Mm. I mean, it's huge, isn't it? Gladiator. Absolutely massive. And it had yeah. to be. When it's pitching to take us back to the days of the Colosseum and show us the glory of ancient Rome, we need to see spectacle. And that's exactly what Gladiator and Ridley Scott gives us. The cast are fantastic. The old guard of Richard Harris, Oliver Reed and Derek Jack, I'd be sure they've still got it. Connie Nielsen's excellent too. But it's the performances of and dynamic between Russell Crowe and Joaquin Phoenix as Maximus and Commodus. That gives the film its backbone. They're brilliant. The writing might not be the best we've ever talked about, but it does what it needs to and it works well. But it's the recreation of Rome for me. The effects work, the production design, the costume design, the attention to detail, the research, that is outstanding. And it's that what keeps me coming back for rewatches of the film. So for the iconic performances, the visuals, the tone Scott creates, the creation of this ancient civilization, this could have been a masterpiece. But the writing pulls it down slightly for me. And there should have been brothers. So... It's a nine out of ten for me as well. (laughs) Turn it into West Side Story, (laughs) not a musical. (laughs) Dancing gladiators. That would be great. (laughs) My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. Clicking the fingers, all the gladiators are clicking across the Colosseum. Be fucking madness, that. I hope that's what Spielberg's version's like. <laughs> and Matty, or summary and score for Gladiator, please. Yeah. I think one thing about Gladiator is that what it does and what it gets right is actually harder than it looks because we've already mentioned all the films that came after this. I mean, Ridley Scott tried twice with Kingdom of Heaven and Exodus, both nowhere near this 
Alexander, yeah. Troy, nowhere near the level of quality that you get mm. from this film. And that's why I think the film does deserve a bit more credit than it gets from a lot of people because to get this right is easier said than done, particularly when, as we've mentioned, they had a very, very heavily rewritten script to work with. So it's Ridley Scott back on form, visually mostly amazing, some ropey shots now, unfortunately, and it is helped so much by those performances of Crow and Phoenix and then the likes of Reed and Nielsen in support. They add so much to it and they give so much weight to this film and the whole thing moves it at an incredible Mm -hmm. pace. But it is a film where there's not much going on beneath the surface And, and not every film needs to have a deep script but I do think Gladiator at times thinks it's a bit more intelligent yeah. than it is. And I think that's because it got rewritten so many times. The stuff left in there about the Senate that was in like draft 13 <laughs> before they got to draft 57, which is the one they used. And I also have to judge it for me against what I read at Alien when we covered that and what I read Blade Runner because they are his two best. This is probably comfortably his third yeah. best film, but it's not up there with him. So for that reason, taking all that into account, I am very entertained. I've always got time for this film. I just needed to be a bit more substantial to hold together a bit more. So it gets an 8.5. Oh, right. So another benefit of being a paid run is that your vote will count for a lot in deciding the overall scores for the movies we cover. So some of our paid runs comments on Gladiator. Kenny Morrison said, It's a great old-fashioned Sunday afternoon watch. Some amazing action set pieces and quotable lines, and it still looks tremendous to this day. Like some of the other comments, it never really caught me like it did others, so it's 8.5. Then he says, yeah, 8.5 isn't an option, but surely you can add that up, lads. I can't. I tried, <laughs> Kenny. I'm an idiot. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> Kenny. We're a bit that's, why Matt, that's why Matt put a 0.5 in, so it just runs it up. <laughs> Karim Helliwell said, love this film, but I'm scoring it at 9, purely because it's literally just under what I class as my all-time classics. Which crow performance out of this and the insider do you all prefer? Very quickly, fellas, which is your fave? This one. Yeah, this one. I'm going Gladiator as well. I think he's great in Insider, but a lot easier to replace in that than he is in Gladiator. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a double team with, with Pacino. This isn't. Yeah. yeah, that's it. And Adam Yates said there's so much to like about Gladiator. Some stellar performances in there, and obviously the set pieces are monumental. It's a bit too long and a fair bit cheesy in parts, so I can't find it in me to give him any more than 8 out of 10. Where's it cheesy, though? Um, yeah, I don't think it's cheesy, to be honest. Yeah, Not really cheesy. John, it'd be cheesy if they were brothers, I'll tell you that. Ha <laughs> 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 yeah, wouldn't be. The Gladiator Brothers, just call it that. <laughs> and altogether, our Twitter followers ranked the film as, what do you think? 8. N- 9. In the middle, 8.5 out of 10. 8.5, yeah. So that gives Gladiator 35 out of 40 in total. You can check our website for the full ranking table and to see where Gladiator sits. So that's everything we have on Gladiator. We hope everybody Mm -hmm. has been entertained. Hopefully so. (laughs) Up in a couple of weeks' time, choose life, choose a career, choose all the right movies, as Matt, Luke and P.I. are going behind the scenes on British iconic classic train spotting. Mm. Should be good, right, Matt? Should be, should be uh, full of light, fluffy stories, no doubt. No, no doubt about that. <laughs> to find out more about becoming a Patreon, accessing our archive, bonus episodes, and supporting us in what we do, please visit patreon.com forward slash all the right movies. You can subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. Socially, you can keep up with all the right movies on Twitter, which is at ATWrightMovies. 
on instagram we are at all the underscore right movies we have a youtube channel so please visit youtube.com forward slash all the right movies to find that and subscribe and for our movie group on facebook you can join in with all the movie chat and phone by searching for all the right movies and our website is all the right movies.com we're all off now to find out who the busy little bees are in all the right movies <laughs> my money's on matt to be honest yeah nobody's that too. nice nobody's that nice. yeah mm. just gonna put a vibe out of your boob <laughs> <laughs> we will see you again but not yet not yet not yet <laughs> in two weeks yeah. for dreams yeah right thanks guys see you soon thanks guys stay safe we are shadows and dust